the Protect Your Neck Podcast. Top five mat wrestlers in MMA with special guest Ryan Wagner. We broke down some of the sport's best top players from old school to the metagame. Hot air hangs like a dead man from a white oak tree. People sitting on porches thinking how things used to be. Dark night. It's a dark night. What is up, my friends? This is the Protect Your Neck Podcast, and I'm your host, Dan Tom. Analyst is work you can find over at MMAJunkie.com. But on this here program, the Protect Your Neck Podcast, we break down high-level MMA. That's what we're going to do here today, but in a slightly different way. That's right, amid the UFC chaos, the ultimate, ultimate filler content, as I like to call it these <laughs> days, it's always important to refresh yourself with history, refresh why you love this martial art or the martial arts that comprise this mixed martial arts game. And to do that for this top five, which will be top five mat wrestlers, I'm bringing in someone from the fight site, thefight-site.com. This is Ryan Wagner, a guy I've respected. I've been looking at his work for some time, and it's an honor to have him on the show. At Ryan AWAG MMA on Twitter. What's up, Ryan? Hey, Dan. I'm doing great. It's an honor to be here. I'm super, super excited to talk to you today. Uh, thank you for coming on, man. Um, I was having, I was able to have one of your colleagues, your cohorts, if you will, Ed Gallo. Shouts to Ed on. That was a fun uh, wrestling topic. And when we first were trying to decide what to do for wrestling, um, as I round this to the topic at hand here, uh, we ended up doing, you know, wrestlers from a neutral position because, you know, there are fun things you can do like clinch and if you want to get to guard passing or scrambles as a, as a specific, although we covered a lot of scrambling with the neutral wrestling area. And we thought, you know what, Matt Wrestlers will be a fun topic. And Ed said, you know what, Ryan Wagner is the man to talk to for top five Matt Wrestlers. Is this a passionate topic for you, Ryan? Yeah, um, I, I've talked with Ed a lot about folk style wrestling. <clears throat> we have the, Ed's a big fan of freestyle. He watches a lot of wrestling and I've been trying to get into it recently and I've kind of gravitated toward folk style. Um, there's a lot of stuff that bothers me about freestyle. Obviously, those are the best wrestlers in the world because you get the international competition. But it kind of frustrates me to see the fight go to the ground and then one wrestler just starfish out and try to stall for 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. But I love watching the, the collegiate wrestling and the control those guys have. And I've been thinking a lot about how it transfers over to MMA. And there's super interesting possibilities for controlling guys on the ground. This is something that's personally relevant to me as well. Uh, I wrestled in high school. I didn't get it, like very good training opportunities, and I could only do it for two years because I had I moved to a school that didn't have a wrestling team later. But when I started training MMA more in depth, I always kind of gravitated toward that folk style kind of control and tried to implement a lot of that into my game. So I'm definitely a big fan of that kind of stuff in MMA. Definitely. You know, it, it. I really like talking, especially, you know, I didn't know you wrestled in high school, by the way, so I'm going to... I'm gonna. Uh, that's actually a good segue to kind of your background as we as we as we step into this topic here. But you know, especially people who uh, have ha- had that wrestling experience. Again, you don't have to you know go and win a double NCAA title to um, know what you're talking about. Uh, you know, as my listeners uh, probably heard when I had your colleague on Ed, 
Um, and that's interesting to hear that you also uh, had some of that wrestling experience. Um, I was always very jealous. I was too wrapped up between uh, doing karate outside of school, and the only thing uh, the only thing that would go with my schedule was was theater, and there was a nice girl guy ratio. So I did that oh, inside yeah. of school. So I never officially like was on the football team or on the wrestling team, but I was friends with all the people on those teams and coaches. So I would be regularly be in in both said practices. So I, I could never. I was always very envious though of the wrestlers. And uh, I'm still kicking myself in the butt for just not making that jump in high school myself, man. But tell me, was that was wrestling your first martial art? While we're on the topic, um, I think I yeah, I think I started in submission grappling. It was this, I think I like I heard a I saw an ad in the newspaper for like some kind of MMA grappling thing, and I always around this time I'd been kind of getting into MMA. I remember one of the first fights I watched and was really into was Penn versus Stevenson. Oh, yeah. I don't even know how old I was. That was forever ago. But I would do, like, just rolling around with my friends and had a lot of fun with that. And so I was like, hey, sure, let's check it out. And it was this this guy training people out of his garage. He was some super terrifying, uh, like, scary old Russian dude. He told us a story once about how he how he was getting mugged by a guy and he like just said in the most terrifying soviet voice you can imagine you should put that down and walk away now and apparently the guy just left him alone just to give you an idea of what this guy was doing he would just set up like mats not not like actual mats just those old school puzzle mats in his garage and just train kids out of there and it, it was a lot of fun i liked it a lot julia budd i think got her start out of there that was the first gym she trained at before she moved to Gibson MMA. And she would come down now and again to train with us. And then after that, I got really into it. I wanted to do as many martial arts as I can, just experience all of that. I tried wrestling in high school. I live in Canada, so it wasn't very good training. Um, and there wasn't like a lot of great competition. So I was pretty horrible at that. And then after that, I moved to... Um, to Vancouver, around that area. I trained okay. at Gibson MMA for a while and a bunch of different MMA gyms. So I've been training now for probably about 12, 14 years, somewhere around there. And ironically, as soon as I left high school wrestling, I kind of started to pick up a lot of the wrestling tactics. Like, I wasn't any good at wrestling while I was wrestling, <laughs> but training in MMA gyms and being around uh, like that kind of training mentality wrestling was one of the the main things i worked on and now it's one of the stronger aspects of my game it, it almost maybe force applications that maybe you already learned but didn't think you uh, learned kind of a thing yeah was... makes sense no that that totally makes sense i mean um even though wrestling you know especially from you know neutral position uh one of my weakest things back then to peak MMA training, you know, um, when I can think of me at my best, which was terrible, obviously. Uh, but that was definitely, amongst all the terrible, the most terrible was anything kind of neutral space. But just through application, um, I found myself, and I, I didn't necessarily want to be like a, an, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to burn this name, but I'll just, I'll just step on it in case, you know, hopefully it doesn't come up, but we'll see, like a John Fisher. And they're not uh, appealing styles per se, but you break down certain things, especially, you know, from wrestling and mat wrestling, like we're going to be talking about. And man, did I fall in love with mat wrestling, even though wrestling seemed like the furthest uh, martial art that my body could, could really, <laughs> could really, could really jive with, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. I think the neutral wrestling was a big problem for me in actual wrestling, because I've 
I, I don't know, like, this probably isn't a universal experience, especially because I was in, like, some random school in Canada. But they didn't, they taught you the isolated moves. Like, they teach you a double egg, a single egg, and all that. They didn't teach you how to get to them. They didn't teach you, like, a system behind that. Uh, so I would just go out and be like, okay, single egg, I'll try that. But when I started training MMA, I started to think about it more systematically. Like, how do you, what are my highest percentage moves? How do I get to that? And then it started making a lot more sense. And then I could, like, retroactively go back and apply that to wrestling situations. So now when I'm when I'm doing pure wrestling, I'm not just thinking about the move. I'm thinking, okay, hand fight my way into a collar tie and then look to control their wrist and then either go underhook or whatever they decide to do based on that. So it really helped just kind of conceptualize what I'm doing and give me a broader view of how to approach things. That makes sense. And, you know, that right there is, is I mean, obviously it's always easier said than done. And uh, we'll get into the topic, folks. We'll be getting into this top five because if we keep talking, we're probably going to start burning some of the guys we <laughs> want to talk about. But it's one of those things where guys either figure those adaptations out or they don't. And not only do, do they either do it or they don't at a high level, but even guys who accomplished on wrestling at a high level and came over, like a Mark Munoz per se, um, you know, we would see certain things once he kind of got figured out, his shot game. Uh, wasn't maybe the greatest as he relied a lot on counters. And when guys started figuring that out, it kind of became ugly, especially to the naked eye, just as watching as a casual MMA fan. But when you understand wrestling more and how certain guys are wired, you can see that, ooh, yeah, I can see a lot of guys, even being high level, falling into those traps if they're always depending on perhaps countering and then they don't have the striking game to uh, compensate and, and stack those chips in their favor, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, we're gonna we're definitely gonna get in. We're gonna this will also be a good opportunity to talk about some of obviously our favorite fighters, our favorite grapplers, or maybe and we'll get to them. But maybe in some cases, maybe they're not our favorite fighters, but you just really can't deny them for for this list. <laughs> and maybe there's some of those picks for either me or Ryan, if you get what I'm saying. But uh, but thank you guys for joining us. This is again the Protecting Neck Podcast Top Five Matt Wrestlers and MMA joined with Ryan Wagner from The Fight Site, which, of course, go check out all their content over there, thefight-site.com. I don't mind giving plugs for other things, especially if they're genuinely good things that I genuinely like. So uh, let's, let's, uh, let, let's go forward, shall we? So top five mat wrestlers. Basically, there's no hard rules to this podcast. Um, like I explained to Ryan, like, like my listeners know, um, but let's kind of talk rough context here. Again, with neutral wrestlers, scrambling was a big part of it. Um, for example, mat wrestling, um, guard passing is definitely a part that I am not going to hold against you or anybody. It's a, I, I believe it's a part of what we're talking about, Ryan. But let me just say, uh, just for me trying to think ahead in case I do do a top five guard passers, um, let's just say that the, the people I selected, though they could be on that list as well, uh, their guard passing ability wasn't a hinging topic for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. It's the same for me. Um, the ones I picked, some of them are great guard passers, but in a way that facilitates and combines with their wrestling. Absolutely. So I'm not denying it, and neither is Ryan. We're on the same page there. It is a part of the topic. Um, again, um, some of these guys as well I'm on my list, um, I'd be lying if their ability to put things together, not just from strikes, but even submissions, 
would earn them points. And as I'll maybe argue when we get to those people, it demonstrates their understanding of mat wrestling and MMA or shouts to Zach Makovsky, the really the proper term, which is ground fighting, which is what it is because it strikes. Uh, there are no gi callers for the Sambo, Jiu-Jitsu, or Judo players. You know, this is its own thing. It's ground fighting. So don't let the don't let the title fool you too much. But, uh, you know... Um, but 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 yes, back to the submission point. Uh, even though it, it, it may be a bonus, there may be some submission-heavy wrestlers on my list. Hint hint. That being said, we're not doing top five submission grapplers, so their submission abilities uh, don't um, carry a ton of weight on this list. Again, because the key to this list is is Matt wrestling. Does that make sense? Yeah. Zach brought up a great point that you can't really like separate necessarily different styles of ground control. It's all one kind of art and there's different ways to approach it but you're essentially doing the same thing although like for the for specificity of discussion uh the way i interpreted mat wrestling was guys who have a who use more wrestling or folk style based tactics uh, strategies and metas in their ground fighting so you won't i won't have guys like damian maya mm-hmm. on it who's who has the kind of traditional brazilian jiu-jitsu passing progression and positional hierarchy so i'm focusing more on tactics uh strategies and techniques that you'll see in maybe a college wrestling match and guys who apply that well to mma yeah same here um same here uh for the most part my 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 number five and um my number five and four but you know as we as we close the gap it really it really you really kind of see um where my list is going and the kind of things that i like but I, I completely agree and sign off with that. And and yes, yeah, completely. Um, bringing that that meta game, if you will. And it's it's funny, man. It's become like a safety for me. Like I was, I finally got you know, which sucks because with everything going on, not to timestamp these episodes too hard. But yes, it's the age of COVID, and, and it looks like we are respiking, especially in the state that I'm in, here in the United States, with how. Uh, <laughs> my people are handling things which is another topic for another day so i don't know when i'll get to go back on the mats again but goddamn was it nice and um you know maybe because i'm older and out of shape and all, all the above but man getting to some wrestling rides and getting to some top uh getting to some control positions like i loved them before but boy do they become your best friend uh when you need them and we're gonna definitely talk about guys who who use them when they need them at the highest levels yeah all right, uh, Ryan, do you want to go first or should I go first? Either way, we'll probably do a Chinese fire drill and uh, and uh, change up uh, positions in the middle. Uh, okay, I'll go first. All right, number five for Ryan. Who ended up making your number five spot? My number five pick is Ryan Bader. Oh. Uh, so if you've heard, if you've ever heard Randy Couture, or rather Joe Rogan, say that Randy Couture liked to like to stay in half guard in ground and pound rather than passing and you'll usually see that whenever somebody's using half guard to to hit their opponent effectively Bader does this a lot he he'll like look to put himself in half guard rather than passing to side control because it lets you sit on the leg and pin it uh, and then obviously while you're pinning the leg the opponent's base is compromised and it's a lot easier to strike whereas if you're in side control their hips are free and they can maybe move more effectively um when he's in half guard and his opponent tries to escape, they'll usually turn into him, and then he'll either use head position to force them back down, or a ri- he'll enter into a wrist ride. If you watch his fights with um, 
Matt Mitrione and uh, who was the the Melanson trained grappler that he fought? Hmm. Um, Mitrione technically fits that bill too, but uh, was it in, was it over in Bellator? Yeah. Hold on a sec. It was Linton Vassell. That's it. Yes, Vassell. Yep. Yeah. So he's great at using those wrist rides when guys are trying to turn out of his half guard, and he has the the ground striking and the threat there to make you turn. Uh, he's not just sitting in half guard controlling you. He's trying to smash your face in. If you look at his fight with Nogueira, the second fight, he did an amazing job sitting up in half guard, posturing up, and controlling his wrists so he could land elbows with impunity. And he, he's great at those wrist rides, especially along the cage. In the Linton Vassell fight, this was particularly impressive because Linton Vassell is a very good grappler. Yeah. He has a great top game. He does a lot of those kind of folk style and catch tactics himself. Um, he he would just he'd take him down along the cage. He'd get on a wrist ride, trap the wrist behind his back, and then it's the the Habib thing from there. He just punches his face in with impunity. He finished him from there. Um, Bader does a lot of really unique stuff too that I haven't really seen from too many other guys, and it's only recently that he's kind of adapted these folk style tactics into his game. I seem to remember before around the. The second Noguera fight, that was when I first noticed uh, how good and how how beautiful, if, if you'll permit that, his riding game got. Um, in the Mitrione fight, he was doing a lot of, he was using a leg drag position, uh, which is where you, like, typically in jiu-jitsu, it'll come up when you, hard to describe, but you throw their leg aside and then you end up with a position where you're pinning their bottom leg down uh, and your hip is kind of forcing their top leg across their body. So their, their hips are flattened out, their spine is disconnected from their hip, and they can't really get in any leverage to turn or push you off. So he would go to a leg drag on Mitrione, either when Mitrione tried to roll into a, a leg entanglement himself, or when he broke him down from a quad pod. And then he'd tr- use that to transition to an Iowa ride. So he'd be sitting on the bottom leg, punching him in the face. It would force Mitrione to turn and expose his back to try to get up. And then from there, uh, Ryan Bader would just... He'd barely have to move at all. He'd just slip his ankle underneath Mitrione's shin as he turned and be right into an Iowa ride where his leg was pinning the near side leg of Mitrione's down. And from there, he could smash him in the face very effectively. Um, another thing I love that he was doing in that fight was the way he was breaking him down from, from all fours. If you're getting up, especially from a wrestling ride, you you have to build your base up first. You You have to post on your hands and on your knees. And he would attack the post very well. He would control a wrist and then put his head kind of in the crook of the armpit, uh, mm. put his near side leg on Mitrione's to block that, and then use the head pressure in the armpit to break his leg down and his arm. He does a really good job shelving legs when he has guys in kind of a guard position against the cage. They're, they're trying to push off his hips. He'll take the leg and pick it up a little bit and then just elevate his own knee so that their leg is sitting atop his knee and it's not connected to the ground. Uh, so yeah, I've been really impressed with Ryan Bader's riding game recently, and especially the uh, a big thing when I was considering who to pick was the, the competition they beat. And although I don't rate heavyweight and light heavyweight as much as high as smaller divisions, Linton Vassell is a genuinely great grappler and Bader being able to just squash him the way he did is super impressive. Absolutely. I like the uh, description on that, almost like head-in-the-hole variation. Um, 
Bader Bader can go to and, and his just riding in general it's really it's really high percentage there's he was really close to making the list and you definitely could argue especially uh again you know uh with maybe who who I end up going with the slot but um I Bader was definitely up there he's got the H next to his name which means honorable mention uh which means uh close to making the list and you know when I when I write up Bader on his writing uh, on his rides I don't uh, get into even a, you know that much detail, which was great. Um, but but I'll, I'll, I always use this term, and it's stuck in my head from his early uh, days, and, and I'll talk about his more recent improvements in a second. But like his, especially his early ride, you especially watching against dudes like what was like Anthony Perosh and shit back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I always describe it like he his rides are so solid and they're so high percentage. That it's like uh, it makes a guy look like he's AFK away from his keyboard, or like someone stepped away from the like when your friend steps away to get a controller, he's like, "Don't unpause it, bro. I'm gonna go grab a grab another drink." And you just unpause it, and you just start walloping on the character, and there's no movement. Like that's almost yeah. what it looks like when his riding is in full is in full throw, right? Yeah, that's an excellent description. He he tried to hammerlock Nogara. I have no choice but to stand. Oh yes, absolutely. Hammerlocks are the. Oh, amazing. yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, you're making me wish, you know, between you and and, and the, you know, the shelling I'm probably going to get from Ed, uh, <laughs> you're making me wish I put Ryan Bader on the spot. But uh, what I like about his evolution is that he, you know, like we'll see guys kind of go too much jujitsu and they'll kind of get scared away, at least with a, definitely someone who's on my list we'll talk about later. And, or they just get like, you know, um, you know, very, very seldom do you get the guy who can, the wrestler who can be very comfortable on his back, but also know not to go there. That's a weird balance that certain guys maybe on this list uh, we'll talk about. But, um, but, but with, with Bader, he worked with, what's, I'm going to mispronounce his name. I apologize. It's a fourth degree black belt, Yair Lorenko, Lorenko. And I know he's been working with him probably around that Noguera fight that you cited and if what I like about it is that you can tell he's he's really getting, you know, the screws tightened, albeit even if it's from a jiu-jitsu perspective, but it's not taking away from his style. He's not sacrificing his style. He's not sacrificing his pathways um, or his normal routes per se. He's really just what you should be doing and what most guys set out to do. He's really fine-tuning the f- finishing positions with the jiu-jitsu influence, and it's not taking away from his wrestling. At least that's my read. On this recent oh, yeah, run for Bader, what about you? Yeah, you see a lot of guys, um, especially wrestlers early, they they kind of struggle to navigate the whole jiu-jitsu meta. One guy in particular, Michael Perez, he's a Cuban Olympic wrestler. He's only been fighting MMA for like four years. Um, he fought Brandon Moreno in his first fight out of the UFC after he got cut before he got re-signed. Oh, okay. He does a lot of lovely folk-style riding stuff, uh, hammerlocks, Nelsons and everything. But he has a lot of trouble, like sometimes he'll try to take the back and then guys turn out and they're on top of him. So that's um, often really tough for for wrestlers to know how to implement their own game in once they're facing a much more open grappling meta. And Bader especially, I think, has kind of narrowed down his game to like the bare essentials um, and focusing on the, like you said, the high percentage tactics and used it, the jiu-jitsu training as a complement to that rather than getting sidetracked from what he's most effective at and that's what you always want to see with those guys uh, whereas some of them kind of get bogged down in trying to to fit the jiu-jitsu meta and trying to do the 
traditional kind of positional hierarchy, Bader has really used that to funnel his game into where he wants it to be and where he's most effective, which is the riding. Absolutely. No, great, great, uh, great points there. All right. Um, I'm going to push to my number five, although it doesn't really necessarily segue with Ryan Bader. He is a younger wrestler. In fact, he's even younger than Ryan Bader. But I'm actually picking him more for an old school choice because even though, you know, the wrestling metagame that we're speaking of in regards to ground fighting in MMA um, is amazing and we're fans of it, we're stands of it, we're going to be talking even more about it and they obviously are a core of this list. I'm going to be talking about more the old school game. Uh, it's a younger guy that represents that old school game, uh, which was how wrestlers initially used their mat control and mat wrestling early on the sport, which was from the guard, right? Um, now, I, I'm going to be confident in burning this name because, you know, he burns his own name, let's be honest, regardless of this list. But I don't think he'll be on here, which is Tito Ortiz. Um Tito Ortiz obviously gets a lot of credit. He he is a he is a savvy grappler. Um, you know, uh, one of the wrestlers that actually you know could work from bottom when he needed to, kind of like what I alluded to. But he gets a lot of his credit for what the elbows inside the guard. Um, they were good. Uh, I'm not saying they weren't, but when you look at maybe uh, we'll get to it maybe on my next one because well, how he did against other wrestlers who also made their money didn't go quite as well for him. Um, so I'm actually going to go with Michael Chandler here, a Mizzou Tiger. Uh, probably won't be the only Mizzou uh, Tiger we talk about today. But, again, um, a lot of holes, a lot of untapped potential as far as what we're talking about within ground fighting and MMA. Similar to his striking, I didn't go back and watch Chandler's uh, wrestling, admittedly. Um, it, you know, uh, not, again, it, it's important and it does lay context to these fighters, to these picks, to this topic. Um, although not necessary, because again, it's, it's it's what they do in MMA. But similar to Chandler's striking, it's almost like his aggression is always what's kind of gotten the better of his process. Um, and we could talk about his striking another time and the definite the evolutions and de-evolutions that it went through. Um, but Michael Chandler was a Melanson-trained grappler for a lot of the part. He came over to Extreme Couture. Um, as many of my listeners know, that's about when I met him and was training uh, before he signed with Bellator. He was actually not sure where, where he wanted to go because he wanted to fight soon, but he didn't want to wait for the Bellator season. This was back when they did their tournament seasons. So uh, Chandler got a lot of work with Neil. Neil would, Neil would eventually follow Chandler to Alliance MMA in San Diego. Um, and in it, you just it was great because... This is obviously a biased pick. This is coming in at my number five, the weakest slot, the hipster slot, the whatever you want. <laughs> so I, I'm willing to take a shelling and admit admit it for what it is. But again, if we're focusing and we want to, if I want to have a pick here, Ryan, that kind of gives credit to inside the guard work, it was great to see one of the best grounded pound coaches and the principles that he would teach, you know, me and my grappling team and, and the people in the gym to finally start seeing it at this point at a high level. One, you know, one of the pros, one of the higher level pros that really took on um, to grappling, that took on to Neil's uh, training. And yes, uh, I, I always stand for a, a wrestler that's not afraid to put his hooks in and start learning submissions. And Michael Chandler definitely fits that bill. 
but it wasn't so much that that earns him on the list. It was the fact that he understood shoulder pressures, head pressures, and when he was inside the guard, you can, especially when you go back to certain matches, you'll hear, hear Neil's voice from the corner all the way in, all the way out. It is such a basic concept in both striking and particularly ground and pound where it's really pliable and important and high percentage, but it's not necessarily emphasized or shown enough much less accompanied with the hip position and hand fighting. Like there's very little things that he does, even not even just posture, keeping posture all the way in, all the way out, always fighting hands because he knew that was going to set up punches and elbows over the top. If you ever see someone overhook Michael Chandler, if they get him in a full guard and they overhook, he does the rule of thumb that it, most people don't do. I still have yet to hear a commentator for any organization hit this rule of thumb. Grapplers, if you're listening, if you're on top position, someone overhooks you, tries to start working their high guard or rubber guard, you put your forehead to the same side as the overhook. Me and Ed yes. stand out. Me and Ed stand about head posts and how useful they are. You don't even have to be threatened. Um, to be to be swept to use that head post. In fact, posting your head will shut down said threats before they even get there. It'll allow you to re-swim your hand to go right, right back to inside bicep control. Then you can remove your head and you have pathways for punches and elbows, baby. And even just small details that you can't see that I was taught particularly by Mike because I could feel it. I'm like, what are you doing different? Forget the <laughs> wrestling pressure, forget the hand stuff that I was talking about, the head position. Even just where he put, where were his hips connected to your hips when he is inside the guard, I will try to almost imitate the same thing where my inner, upper inner thighs, that nice fatty juicy part of, of, of the upper inner thighs, folks, you almost want that clamping on the side of their ass, ass where the ass meets the hip if you're on top inside someone's guard. And and people will feel that it's that does not feel good. You do not if you're a, if you're a, if you, if you, if you're someone who's really good with your hips from guard, you like to elevate your hips is what you should be doing, creating space and looking for angles. That even just clamping notion of the inner thighs and the riding and resting and just uh, you know uh, uh, brooding over your opponent like that is Mike Chandler 101, Neil Melanson one and uh, 101 grounded pound. And it's not an elegant, it's definitely an older form, uh, uh, a tactic of mat wrestling that we see used in MMA, uh, whether we're talking the metagame or not. But it's something that I had to give, I had to give some shine and some highlight to and ended up choosing Mike Chandler to do so, Ryan. Yeah, for sure. I can definitely see uh, Chandler there. And like you said, the big thing that stands out in regards to Chandler for me is his posture and guard. It, it was... He was pretty much unshakable. He fought a lot of great grapplers, Henderson, Yamauchi, Primus, and he basically had his way with them on the ground. Um, one, it's been a while since I've watched too many Chandler fights, but one that stands out in my mind is him destroying Dave Rickles on the ground. Mm -hmm. And it's like you said, that principle of all the way in and all the way out is demonstrated excellent, excellently in his fights. When he's inside the guard, his posture is impeccable, like you said, posting on the head, um, pressuring forward. And a lot of, especially in like the early MMA days, you would see guys kind of hanging out in a high guard. Chandler always pressuring forward. If his opponent is, is against the cage, he's forcing their head right back into it, uh, forcing his his head over top of theirs so they can't, they don't have any space to move backwards. They don't have space to get their feet on his hips. 
and then when when he's ready to strike he either postures up in the guard keeps his frames keeps his hips and shoulders aligned and drops bombs or he gets all the way out controls the leg stands out of the guard and then uses uses the grip on the leg to strike in i i think that's how he finished dave rickles he kind of like approached the guard from outside and then punched his way in controlling the legs um he's an incredible scrambler too his defensive wrestling is insane the the benson henderson fight was there was some insane scrambles there um Chandler, like, there's no way to control him on the ground. He is, he's one of those guys. Um, I don't want to. I almost compared him to a guy later on my list, but I don't want to spoil that right now. But if you if you're in on his hips or you're on his back and trying to control him, he he's just working nonstop. His work rate is incredible. He never stops hustling, never stops scrambling until he's back up. And I'm not as familiar with Chandler as some of the other guys will likely talk about. Right. But yeah, the things that stand out for me mostly are just how impeccable his posture was in guard um, and how just intense his scrambling was. I think Ed brought this up in the last podcast, but you can go on his Instagram and watch him and Usman oh, yeah. just going, going back and forth with insane scrambles. And obviously they're not like, they're not going 100%. Usman has like a big size advantage on him, but the work rate and the flow is constant. They're hitting magic sticks on each other. It's awesome. Yeah, that's the thing too. Like a lot of, and I kind of semi-joke about this, but like a lot of times the word explosive can A, be overused and B, if you're asking someone like me, kind of seem to be kind of have a racial tone to it yeah fair unfair right like and like and just to kind of snap back into reality or, or contrast to show that, that that there's base when i when i bring that up i bring a, a guy like michael chandler like michael chandler is fucking explosive that to me is the number one again i've i've, I've shared the mat with him so i've been able to feel that but like just doing turtle drills and you know like i guess it would be what four point position like wrestling you know, and, and like, you know, uh, getting to choose, you know, getting to pick my ride position and like trying to pick the most dumb and just being terrified for when when coach <laughs> says go, because I mean, the dude was just the definition of explosion. You can't control that shit. Um, yeah. And it, it, it was, uh, it, you know, and, and yeah, it, he was he was not controlled easily. I'll just I'll just leave it. at I'll just leave it at that. But that that's my number Absolutely. five. Um all right, sir. What is your number four? Are, are we are, are we sticking with a similar theme there? Where, where, where does your list go from here? Talking, speaking of intense scramblers, my number four pick is Joseph Benavides. Nice, nice. So he's not the, not necessarily the offensive wrestler that a lot of the other guys on my list are, but in terms of defensive mat wrestling, I think he's pretty much unparalleled in MMA. His scrambling is whenever you see whenever you say scrambling in MMA, the first name that pops into my mind is always Joseph Benavidez. I think he was one of the first guys to kind of demonstrate how effective a wrestling-focused bottom game is for MMA. Um, like years ago, in the even in the early 2010s, there would be a lot of guys even at the higher level trying to play off their back at length, and we've kind of slowly figured out that that's not a great way to to structure your bottom game in MMA. There's five minute rounds. You don't get you don't get time to consolidate a position in guard and set traps that you'd like. And it's a mechanically weaker position with punches than it is obviously in pure grappling. And nowadays there's been I know Faraz Sahabi has talked a lot about what he calls the thirty second guard, I think it is, 
which is the concept that if you're on the bottom, you got to do some shit real quick. You don't have time to chill out and set stuff up. Yep. You got to sweep, submit, or stand up right away. Uh, and now, when we look at the bottom game at a, at, at a high level in MMA, the meta is much more geared towards getting up, wrestling out, rather than trying to play guard, put your feet on the hips and all that. And Joseph Benavides, like I said, is one of the first guys to demonstrate how effective that can be and how to do that at a high level. His bottom game was focused on bellying down and building up his base as soon as possible. He didn't hang out and guard when he didn't have to. He didn't want to be playing off his back. And one of the the problems with that, if you're going to play the wrestling bottom game and you're going to respond to a top player by trying to belly down, build up your base and fight grips, is that you're exposing your back. And especially more BJJ-focused guys can try to get their hooks in and control you there. Benavidez was absolutely incredible at avoiding back takes. Just unbelievable. If you watch the second UCA Formiga fight, and Formiga is a back-taking specialist. He's a Nova Uniao, one of their premier MMA grapplers. They were always great at that, at taking the back and forcing guys to expose their back. And Formiga is incredible at it. He hit, I think, yeah... And Zach Makovsky, he hit one of the sickest back takes yes. I've ever seen in MMA. Like, where he slipped outside a, a straight left and then kind of pivoted around to the clinch and then hit that Vieira roll on him to take the back. It's just amazing. Every time he tries to take Benavidez's back, it's like two and a half seconds and Benavidez is out. As soon as somebody even thinks about getting a hook in on him, he's rolling to the opposite side and getting trying to glue his hips and shoulders to the mat. And he'll look to, to kind of create like um, an almost leg entanglement situation where it looks like he's rolling for a knee bar, but he wants to turn into them and he'll hook the leg. Against Formiga, he ended up in kind of like a reverse half guard situation and then he was able to scramble out back to his feet. He's done this in a lot of his fights. He does the same thing when anybody tries to take his back. He rolls, glues his hips and shoulders to the mat and then works to turn into them and elevate that leg. There, there, there was some... In um, the I know one was the Ian McCall fight, but the way he peels hooks off, it like, it looks like hips aren't supposed to work like that. Like the way he elevates his hip so high and at an angle that they can't latch onto it with their with like the the back of their shin where you would get a hook in, he just contorts his hip and peels that hook off. It's insane. Um, one of the other things about Benavidez that stands out to me in terms of his conceptual grappling is that he showed how a strong front headlock can be used to to support takedown defense. A lot of guys will try to guillotine in response to a takedown. If you look at Poi's fights with Dan Hooker and Habib, it goes to that guillotine over and over again. Mm -hmm. Benavidez really showed how you can use a front headlock to support strong takedown defense without, uh, without sacrificing position and going to your back. He'll use the guillotine threat to stop takedowns and control his opponents with a front headlock, but rather than pulling guard, he'll look to turn them and come on top. And then once he's on top, he tries to hook a leg. Uh, so if the opponent escapes, he's in strong position to consolidate that rather than getting in an, um, another scramble. His guillotine against Tim Elliott was one of my favorites in, oh, yeah. in MMA. He was working on that. First, he got, um, I think he, he escaped the back or he escaped from bottom or something, and they ended up in a scramble where he got the front headlock. He uses it to turn Tim Elliott to his back, and he's in half guard, controlling that head with one hand. And then he holds that grip for like 45 seconds or something. Uh, first, he's trying to pass the half guard. He gets an underhook with his other hand to control him and flatten his hips out. 
he gets he eventually gets to side control. He's still holding that the one hand behind the head, and then he steps over and traps ends up with both arms trapped. And then he finally locks his hands together. So that that one grip behind the head with his hand, he kept that for for like 45 seconds, methodically setting up the guillotine, doing other things with his opposite hand to set it up. Yep. Um, he in the Zach Makovsky fight, he kept using the front headlock to enter into elevator sweeps. Zach would get in on a leg, or he'd, he'd pick up a single or a double leg, and then try to duck around to the back. And Benavidez would be holding that that guillotine grip. And usually, when you see see guys with the front headlock and the opponent starts ducking around to the back, they're about to get their back taken. But instead of trying to hold it there for too long and ending ending up with Makovsky on his back, he would use it to to push Makovsky a little bit towards towards his opposite arm. It's hard to explain, but it would create just enough space for him to turn back and slip in an elevator. Then he goes to his back, kicks Mikovsky over his hips, and scrambles up back to his feet. Yep. Uh, that that front headlock was a staple of his game for so long. He uses it to pin guys in half guard and side control. He did that to, obviously, Elliot. He kept Moraga flattened out in side control a long time with that headlock grip. He cradles off of it. He cradled Dustin Ortiz off a of front headlock in their fight. There, that was an incredible fight, by the way. Dustin Ortiz deserves a shout-out. Yep. That's an honorable mention there. One of the best wrestling matches in MMA. Just incredible folk-style scrambles all over the place. Um, I, I love that he attaches the... Um, like, he'll do the cow-catcher assist for that, that guillotine threat. And when he turns guys over, like, in the half or side. Um, and, it, it, and that's just something that, like... It's always there, but like off so many variations, whether it's standing, dropping, or you know someone's turtle, and you're gonna try to like do that arm in, like boa choke uh, that like uh, I think was it uh, Ricardo Lamas I think hit it. A bunch of people have hit it before, but yeah. like uh, when 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 these things fail, the guillotine hand itself or your free hand can go to almost that like that that cow catcher assist and hook hook, hook you know hook the fighter under their shoulder. And just turn them, spin them, and Benavidez is so so good at that. I'm picturing it as you're explaining it, and uh, and and I, I love that. Yeah, that that Tim that Elliot. That's one of my favorite setups too. I I, I absolutely love it. Um, the only reason why Benavidez mm-hmm. is not on this list, and I'm a Benavidez uh, uh, stand for sure, is um, is just because I feel like he could be number one for scrambling, for what you're yeah, saying, that's fair. especially with like how. Um, high regard I hold guys like Formiga or Makovsky. Um, not yeah. that MMA math is like part of my critical thinking or most, nor should it be, but th- there, there's a respectable MMA, MMA math there that I think a lot of us can get. Um, and what you said, that detail of hooking the leg or elevating the leg, uh, which is kind of the key, right? And I love it so much. And you really see that in the Formiga scramble because obviously Formiga one of the best back tickers he's fought, one of the best back tickers in any division regardless, just showing how important hooking a leg is, you know, just like you all say, you know, when in doubt, grab a wrist. Well, hooking a leg or elevating a leg doesn't hurt either, especially in those positions. And you just see it completely shut down the back tick and the scramble plan B for Formiga just by hooking that yeah. leg. So, so key. Yeah, his scrambling, which just unbelievable he was amazing at using momentum in scrambles both both creating opportunities to use momentum and just going with his opponents and using it against them 
Um, one that stands out to me is Ali Bogov. I think he countered a late kick and got in on an explosive takedown. And Benavidez just rolls out of it, just goes with his momentum, turns out of it, immediately gets to all fours, and then is back to his feet right away. Yeah, I was insane. And if his opponent isn't giving a momentum to work with, he'll create it. He'll try to turn into you. As soon as you stop it, okay, I'm going the other way. And he's incredible at um, recountering his opponent's counters. This is especially prominent in both the Dustin Ortiz fights. Oh, uh, yeah. He'll be in a front headlock, and Ortiz will either try to like sucker drag him out one side or peek out the other side. And he doesn't get anywhere with it because Benavidez immediately realizes what he's doing and counters it right away. Um, when he tried to peek out, that's um, like Benavidez would be in the front headlock, and then Ortiz would kind of tilt his shoulder up to to disturb Benavidez's weight and force him forward into the side, and then he can sneak his head and hips out through that opening, and Benavidez immediately limps arm limp arms out. Uh, so Ortiz goes kind of face first, and then Benavidez gets back to his back. Or when he tried the sucker drag, tried to kind of arm drag him out of the front headlock. Benavidez would immediately catch an underhook and push him back. Just unbelievable awareness in scrambles. Incredible hips. Um, he's always trying to elevate his hips and just always in an incredible position. And when he's not, he can immediately just do some crazy shit to get himself back there. Funk rolls. He hits funk rolls all the time. Did that to Demetrius Johnson and Ian McCall, I think. Man. Now I just uh, now I just want to see Benavides is one of the few people where like I would actually be interested when they do these like post career or you know winter of their career they start doing these grappling matches and stuff like that like he's one of the few guys where I actually would be like legit interested to see him see him do stuff uh, reg- yeah. regardless of how long he wants to keep his MMA career going great pick great pick um. I'm going to counter that great pick with uh, with the old man Dan Tom pick here, Ryan. You ready? Hit me with it. You ready for number four? I, I know my buddy Zane Simon from Bloody Elbow will be ready to, to shit all over me for, for picking Randy <laughs> Randy Couture. He loves it when I pick Randy Couture. I may have to, you know, ban uh, Randy Couture soon from these lists. Like, I banned BJ Penn from these <laughs> lists. But but damn the man. Um, I actually have Randy Couture, and he's, he's one of the few of my – selections that I actually for whatever reason didn't write his wrestling credentials so that kind of works out because it'll allow me to plug um Ed's wrestling from MMA podcast because he actually recently went over his wrestling credentials and did a good job of job of it over on your guys's uh fightsite.com podcast feed which I suggest you all subscribe subscribe to but yeah man um if I got to give uh full guard some love I got to give half guard topside some love right we're we're not I'm not I'm 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 not uh diving into the meta yet folks I'm still kind of uh living in the past forgive me but if you I actually went back to watch a lot of um Randy Couture's older stuff and I was very impressed uh again like the name that I burned earlier the reason why um, there are some old school names that I, I maybe are less defensible if I wanted to go that route, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to later in the honorable mentions at the end. But like a guy like Tito Ortiz, for example, like he easily gets bumped off the list from the guard work, like I said, from Mike Chandler to the half guard or grounded pound of his era when he went against other guys who could do it just better. And we saw how that five rounds went when they were still calling uh, Randy old back in the day when he fought Tito and literally was spanking him. <laughs> um, from just working him out of, out, of, out of positions. And, and you know, Randy's interesting, you know. Um, I, 
even though there are things that should be mentioned, you know, like being able to go with, uh, go a draw with Jacare Souza in his prime is nothing to scoff at. Although that wasn't in MMA, folks, so I'm not, I'm not obviously um, giving it too much credence. But the point of that is, is that. Randy was a good grappler, man, and you really had to, you know, it really had to be early on before he got submission savvy against a bigger, stronger catch wrestling guy like Barnett. Shouts to Barnett. You know, as know I'm a catch wrestling fan. But really outside of that or maybe Pedro Hizo, and people also forget, like, how good Pedro Hizo was in his day yeah. for his time. Um, I'm a huge Big Dog fan, folks, but, like, not only did Verdum should have kind of uh, sober people up when that happened and it should have they should have been sober from before that mind you as far as skill levels but even a guy like Pedro Hizo was was you could find him tapping um big nog in the old ADC ADCC there uh with a leg lock I want to think I want to say forgive me if I got that wrong folks the point is um you have to be a really big or really talented guy early on to have really gotten the jump on Randy um you know uh, for the most part um, I'm not going to talk about clinch, which he could qualify for, but, uh, and, and sure he didn't really get too many submissions. Although you really started to see that, uh, the, the skill people, like a lot of people talked about when you saw him against like another wrestler, Mike Van Arsdale, for example, uh, I think he hit him with the Anaconda or some type of front choke. Randy had these things, but Randy just loved to ride, loved to pin guys down in half guard. Like we've heard Mike Goldberg, if you were a fan of UFC, say it at nauseum, right? He loves the work from the Turk because he can pin him down from there, Mike, Joe. And, you know, I get it. I get that that's a bit. But Goldie beat our ears with that for a reason, kids. And it's because Randy Couture taught a lot of kids that lesson in the octagon. A lot of people that were kids in retrospect to him. And he just showed that old man wrestling and riding and toughness is going to beat your ass more often than not. Even if you've got, you know, a decade on him, it's, he's still going to beat your ass for the most part. And, um, you know, just going back and kind of watching in regards to that time of just certain little details that he was doing from the shoulder pressure, staying tight, uh, playing a low half guard, stay, being able to stay, stay tight but play a low half guard um, is a random example and a random guy to give credit for. But, like, go watch Tim Kennedy, Robbie Lawler. He does just a really good job of that kind of tight low half guard. Randy Couture would do that all the time where he was still able to keep tight and low on the hips and you had a whole free arm on the near side to, to beat your opponent with. And, uh, yeah, Randy was essentially the first guy. I really don't need to wax on any more than that. But that, there's, there's my pick, Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. Randy Couture, I think, in like the third, maybe the third or fourth year of his career, ground out Kevin Randleman. Yes. And he went right into his own wheelhouse. He fought him in the clinch, fought him on the ground. He wore him out and TKO'd him. And and Je if you, I'm sorry, go ahead. If you've so much as looked at a picture of Kevin Randleman, yeah. I should not need to explain how impressive that is. And Kevin Randleman was a fantastic wrestler himself, as well as an absolutely ridiculous athlete. And Randy, he just dadded him. He, he did what he does. He, he goes out there. He's not the the most athletic. He's not the most ripped, but he's always there. He's always working. He's always in your face. He's always on top of you. In terms of uh, his, like the meta and what he did, one of the things that especially stands out to me for him, um, what you mentioned about the shoulder pressure, always staying on top of guys, but especially pushing guys' face into the ground to, mm. to set up his ground striking. Mm -hmm. That's something that I'll come back to a lot when we talk about some of the Dagestanis that might or might not be on my list. 
but nowadays you kind of see a lot of more much more transitional meta in terms of ground and pound where guys might not to look to lock down position as much but want to create space so they can punch couture did a great job of kind of running the balance between controlling guys and also being able to smash their faces in on top and one of the ways he did this is especially if you watch his fight with tito ortiz Mm -hmm. he's constantly on the head he's cross-facing or he's just pushing it down with his hand and that allows him it breaks tito's posture down and allows him to posture up in half guard so he can get the space to drop those bombs without being worried about him immediately wall walking or scrambling up Perfect example there, right? That fight in particular, when I did a half guard thread, um, when it came to the Randy Couture section of it, I, I used that fight, and you see him, yeah, using the shoulder pressure to kind of steer Tito's head. Um, Tito p- perhaps could have been working to a turtle, like most guys do to, to use the fence to stand, but using the shoulder pressure to re-steer the head and kind of, you know, especially with Tito's head, that that, that bald <laughs> head, it was like a cheese, it looked like a cheese grater, like he was running a cheese through a cheese grater, the way you use the shoulder pressure to just steer that big head back into the cage and into the uncomfortable spot to pin his head, like you said, Ryan, and just smash from there. Um, perf- perfectly, you know, perfectly put. And yeah, that Kevin Randleman fight, I went back to watch that re- recently, and it's like, how many times did Randy Couture do this? You know, everyone remembers the Tim Sylvie and Gabe Gonzagas, which were great to regain the heavyweight title, but like, you know, spoiler alert, I, I went back to watch Randy versus Vitor 1, which is one of my favorite fights for a top five I'm doing for Junkie as far as heavyweight f- wars go. And, you know, like like Vitor is the Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, right, who was undefeated at that time, the monster. He had the Mike Tyson No entrance. known weaknesses. No known weaknesses. And, and Randy Couture beats his ass on his feet <laughs> and then finishes by mounting the Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt in his own corner. And, like, he because he had, like, the half guard kind of – Almost, almost that grounded pound going, you know that that like, like the meta game we see today almost. But yeah. Vitor flailed, and Randy was totally okay with riding and flowing with. But even back then, was comfortable enough to to mount. I mean, this is the age where the wrestlers are still wearing shoes in the rings, folks. This is UFC 15, um, and it it was and and it was uh and and, and the Randleman fight. It's great because you have Jeff Blacknick, who I always I love his commentary because he was a. Uh, Obviously, you know, a world-class Olympic winner uh, in wrestling. I'm sorry, I don't have his credentials. I'm not trying to disrespect the guy, but just for the gist of it. So Very he, good wrestler. Yes, and just really well-spoken. Coin the phrase mixed martial arts, according to many. Um, just deserves a lot of credit for being a pioneer and promoter of the sport. And I, I, I again, I, I love watching his commentary even for wrestling when I go back to watch old Mendez or old... Uh, Askren or anyone else, you know, I love hearing Blatnik's voice. And forgive me for not knowing the wrestler, but I wouldn't be able to give context to that era anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But before the Randleman fight, you know, again, Couture is an underdog, not as credentialed wrestler, older guy, not as much knockout power in the feet. How's he going to win this fight? And Blatnik said, hold on, I've seen Couture win or lose, have his best matches against the toughest guys hence giving the toughest guys on the wrestling circuit their toughest matches whether they beat couture or they didn't because he could outlast them especially these really athletic guys um and there's the word again explosive but you know randleman does fit that bill folks i'm sorry i'm gonna use it there these athletic and explosive guys and blatnik warns everybody in the commentary and sure enough he counter wrestles uh he counter wrestles uh Oh my God, Randleman in the first round, but then after Randleman can't get anything going, he takes over the match. 
Um, like it's a wrestling match, folks. There was very little striking that it was it was really an MMA wrestling match. And he out wrestled the guy that was supposed to be the better athlete, the younger guy, the better credentialed wrestler, and the better fighter. Uh, so that was a great a great shout and great example there um, to kind of strengthen my pick. Thanks, Ryan. You mentioned uh, about him, like the half guard meta and him kind of kicking that off. There's a lot of things that you see a lot in modern MMA that can be like the modern folk style meta that can be traced back to Randy Couture. Um, he was one of the first to really effectively use wrist rides. Mm-hmm. I remember one sequence from the Tito Ortiz fight, I think. Yeah, I think it was that fight. He He's on a wrist ride, and he, he like, scoops up his near side arm with his legs and is kind of like a he's in a crucifix position and starts punching him from there and then he gets a half nelson on the other side when tito tries to turn out so he's like he ends up in this position where he's got like the near side arm trapped in a crucifix with the legs and then he's nelsoning him on the other side and just punching him while he's doing that and that you didn't see that kind of stuff back then from anybody who wasn't randy couture (laughs) and if you guys know what you're looking for you will see randy do a lot of dirty shit he oh, is yeah. one of the, you know, he, especially, you know, especially at the time he had this, you know, in his prime still when he was still fighting, you know, he's like, Captain America, my name's Randy Couture. Randy, <laughs> he's got that voice. They got to edit over it because I don't sound menacing enough. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, I could, I'll talk a little shit, okay? But like, but like, no, just, but it, the, the funny contrast was is he was the dirtiest motherfucker on the mat. He would, I, you know, I learned what checking oil was. Randy Couture. Randy Couture's a dude that will fucking he will check your oil to get position. Uh, for people that don't know what that is, that's inserting your finger into any orifice possible to get a grip. I'll just I'll leave it at that. Go look it up. There's Google, folks. Um, but like you know, like uh, and, and even um, fucking I, <laughs> I think I brought this up to to Zane. I got him to laugh at it, and I think he brought it up in another podcast. And it was like it was like crickets because it was one of those things. Like, what do you say to that? But like. Uh, Dude, Randy Couture was a <laughs> Randy Couture. If you were in the gym and he had gas, he wasn't gonna hold back. He would, he would be, he would, he would call it chemical warfare. He would pin you in a bad position if, if you like. He was an ass, man. He'll dig his head into places. He'll dig his forearm. He did, even if it's just your training partner, like. And I'm not saying that to character assassinate him. Like, it's just kind of like there is this grappling man's mentality. Uh, that's like kind of on another level that you would imagine a Don Fry manometer, and that was Randy Couture, man. He didn't give two fucks. He was one of the. It's always the old men. Dude, they're the dirtiest fucking competitors. It's that that old man strength, the old man tactics. I'm sorry if that was an overshare, Ryan, or to the audience, but these, <laughs> oh no, no, no problem. These are things you need to know about your wholesome heroes, okay? Absolutely. <laughs> I think there's even a bit in. It might be his book, or it might be an instructional video he did, but he like I'm. I could swear at some. In some um, media form, he explains how to dig your chin right into the to the guy's eye. Yes. Yep. That's a classic. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because like, and, and Neil had a lot of these kind of similar things because he came from a catch wrestling and from the highest hand school, which was another really tough school of things. So him and Randy really got on, you know. Um, whereas when Neil trained Vitor, let's just say. Vitor was a little more delicate. It was more handling the ego, right? It was a different style. Whereas Randy, you Randy, Randy kept Neil around because of the you know, there's a certain amount of uh, there's a certain amount of uh, of roughness. They, they, they called there's a reason why they called jujitsu the gentle art because there's a contrast to that, folks. And I'll just not, are, not shitting on jujitsu, but just yeah, these are not guys that can dish it out and can't take it. The, the guys like Randy Couture. They're they're doing that kind of stuff because 
they've had it done to them and they expect it to be done to them. Yes. Yeah, it's not just, again, it's not just a, a Mike Gober hot word, folks. Like, there is, there is something to the uh, embrace the grind. You know, it's, it's, I know it's been beaten. We're all sick of hearing it. <laughs> but there is a source to it, and that source is Randy Couture. Let's move on from Randy Couture before I get fucking pummeled here for, for talking okay. about it too much. Who is your number three, Ryan? I hope you're going to counter this one with another old man pick because I'm offering up another Zoomer pick. My number three is Ali Bogoff. <laughs> yes. If anyone, there if he anyone is. A- any of your listeners are familiar with me or my work, you knew I wasn't going to come on this podcast about wrestlers and not shout out ACA. So a little bit of background about ACA and Ali Bogov, if, if you're not familiar with them. ACA is by far the, the strongest regional, or, regional organization in terms of competition. They It's where UFC guys go to get beaten up by wrestlers, Russian wrestlers that nobody's ever heard of after their time in the UFC is done especially their lightweight division, has an amazing level of competition. Their top three, now that, well, Ali Bogov has gone to welterweight now, but Bogov, Vartanian, and Abdulaziz Abdulvakabov are genuinely world-class lightweights. They could compete, they could be right in with the top five in the UFC, I think. And Ali Bogov is an absolute monster. He's trained, he recently, I think within the last couple years or so, trained with Abubakar and Ramagomedov. Um, who's obviously responsible for Habib's grappling system, and he transmitted a lot of that to Bogov. Bogov has an incredible top game. He's an absolute monster on top. And not only in wrestling situations, but he's a great guard passer as well. And his guard passing links really well with his grinding game and the whole cage riding system of the Nurmagomedovs. Um, He's, like I said, he's a great guard passer, uh, he combines tripod or smash passing with the kind of like redirection passing you see from a lot of lighter guys. So he'll he'll immediately try to break the guard as soon as he gets in it. He doesn't want to stay in guard. He'll elevate his hips, try to pin the upper body, um, like smashing their face with his head and pressuring in with his chest while he elevates his hips to step over the guard. And then... Once he's elevated above the guard, he likes to force butterflies from his opponent. He'll he'll try to work on a smash pass, switch his hips in a direction to collapse his opponent's mm-hmm. hips, and then walk around it. Or he'll, if he can't get that, he'll start redirecting, leg pummeling, pummeling his legs inside the butterfly hooks and trying to knee slice. Uh, there's an amazing sequence in his, I think, the second fight with Abdulaziz Abdulvakabov. He starts trying to smash pass and... Triple A isn't having it, so Bogov just keeps hopping from side to side, redirecting his legs and flattening his hips with movement uh, before eventually entering into a smash pass. Um, he's in. He's got an interesting riding game. He fair. He favors parallel leg rides over single leg rides. So most of the wrestlers we've talked about, most of the wrestlers I have and will be talking about today, like to get in on one leg. Uh, like Bader with his Iowa ride, pinning one leg down and controlling the wrists while he hits you. Bogov likes to take the back, but he doesn't want to be belly up on the back. Sometimes he'll go he'll go to his own back and try to choke the opponent, but if he can't quickly get a choke, he'll switch over uh, and try to get himself on top. He did this in his fight with Bubba Jenkins, and Bubba Jenkins, also an incredible wrestler, was never he never reached the elite level in MMA. But in terms of wrestling situations, he's absolutely fantastic. I, I don't have his credentials to repeat. 
but he's very good. Um, so Bogov tried to choke him. He went to his back to find the rear naked choke. wasn't working, so he quickly switches over. Uh, he grabs an underhook and posts on the mat to force Jenkins' belly down. And then from there, he can put weight on him, flatten him out, just posture up, and just brutalize him with ground and pound. And he'll posture up from the back, too. He's He'll try to flatten them out and then pressure on the head or kind of sit on the hips and then elevate his upper body and drop heavy bombs. He ended up finishing Jenkins with uh, like a really neat kind of reverse triangle armbar kind of thing. So that was really cool. And since training with the eh, I cannot say that word. Since training with the Nermagomedovs, he's kind of incorporated their cage riding system. So he uses a lot of leg mount against the the cage. When guys are trying to wall walk, he'll scoop up their legs. Uh, he'll tie them up with his own and kind of sit on them. And all these cage riding things are designed to free up your hands while you're riding, so you can pound them in the face. And Bogov is an absolute destroyer with his ground and pound. When guys are wall walking, he'll sit on their legs, he'll push on their face, force it into the mat or force it into the cage and just wail on them over and over. He uses the knee rides on top, so he, he likes knee on belly a lot, uh, especially when he's passing. He'll go from like a, a smash pass or a knee cut right into knee on belly, posture up right away and start punching. And those positions, the, the knee, knee rides, knee on belly, uh, knee on face and all that, are especially great for ground and pound because they, they let you get that, that posture really easily. And they're kind of designed as transitional positions positions and this is the thing with Bogov's style of grappling he is a dominant control wrestler but he's not looking necessarily just to lock you down and control you he wants you to move underneath him and he wants to create space Mm -hmm. Um, if there's a lot of space obviously that gives the opponent room to move but it also gives him room to punch and the way that works is that when he's hitting you in the face over and over again, it kind of funnels you into movements that benefit him. So he, he's leaving a lot of space, and the guys can move underneath him, but they're not going to be moving in ways like... There's, these aren't openings that they can take to get back to their feet right away. He'll, he'll do stuff like force the, the head down while he's in neon belly or postured up in half guard and start punching over and over. And then his opponent has to react because their posture is compromised. They can't start working their way to their feet right now. They just have enough space to maybe slide a leg in and try to recompose guard. And then Bogov is ready right away to step over that leg and put them back in half guard, posture up, and smash their face again. So the the leaving space and these transitional opportunities, it works to, to create opportunities to, to land heavy ground and pound, but it also kind of funnels the opponents into moving in ways that allow him to regain control or allow him to hit. He has a great front headlock, too. Uh, he combines the front headlock with neon belly really well to keep guys flat. I think the fight that's coming to mind is Hussein Kaliev. He, he would be in neon belly and hitting him in the face and then using that front headlock grip to keep him flat when he tried to turn into him. And I talked about the competition earlier, but I have to reiterate it here. Mm-hmm. His fight with his fights with Abdul Vakabov and Hussein Kaliev were some of the the best and most high level grappling matches I've seen in MMA. Both guys are absolutely elite in terms of grappling. Abdul Vakabov was a consideration on my own list. He's genuinely one of the best defensive wrestlers in MMA, 
and Bogov and him were just going back and forth all around. Hussein Kaliev, an incredible grappler himself. He does a lot of great wrestling things on top, and he has a really slick bottom game. He even managed to sweep Bogov from Butterfly Guard at one point. So the guys that he's beating in ACA, these aren't just regional guys. They're not... If you've not heard of them, I would absolutely recommend watching them because they're amazing talents. And Bogov is quite good on the bottom himself. He uses butterfly guards really well to come up on takedowns. Um, this is something you'll see from a lot of the Dagestani guys. They they aren't helpless on their backs. They use mm-hmm. uh, kind of jujitsu things to get back to their wrestling. So Bogov will look to elevate and right away sit up on a single leg. Uh, in the Hussein Kaliev fight, he, he hit a really nice... He entered into octopus half guard, which is kind of like Kaliev postured up to hit him, and then he kind of swam his shoulder outside of Kaliev's shoulder, elevated his hips, and then went went into his own take down to the back. Yep. Bogov, yep. yeah. absolute monster on top. One of the scariest fighters in MMA. I love those two because you, the more rounder you are, as I. As I found out, as I've gained weight, uh, that, that that sweep seems to get one of the few things that can actually get more effective. But no, obviously that's not the case for uh, Ali. But he is a he is a built man, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. And I always forget that he's maybe he's generally generously listed as as five nine. Um, but like I, I for for whatever reason, I have him shorter in my head. Perhaps maybe it's the muscularity, and I can't remember the Kimura catch that he got against Hussein. How how it was set up. Um, but just talking about guys like Abubakar or obviously Habib, having that offlet of their style and the encouragement like you spoke of, of encouraging uh, guys to move underneath you definitely opens things up. Like let's just say if they want the more traditional half guard get up with the underhook or they're you know uh, trying to underhook from a, a flattened out half guard position. And we'll see jiu-jitsu guys do it as well. It's not a wrestling thing per se. But when you have those top control wrestlers armed and they know how to rip a Kimura, boy is that dangerous, especially if you've got the uh, that grappling build and that natural just kind of uh, grappling uh, bulldozer attitude and strength like an Ali Bogov. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, great pick there. I'm gonna say though, I gotta, I gotta. It's it's great because um, he he also made the list in the hipster spot number five for Ed for neutral wrestlers. Um, and uh, I feel like now it's, this has to be the running uh, running <laughs> gag. Even if it's obviously they're genuine and, and well deserved spots for both Eds and yours. But like, let's say I have someone else from the fight site for like top five spin kicks. I fully expect Ali a Bogo. fucking Ali Absolutely. You guys better be dead serious. You better <laughs> sell it, like seriously. No laughter. You have to legitimately try to sell me in the audience. And no, no, I'll tell you why Ali Bogov is my top five for spinning kicks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have top five lists that don't include Ali Bogov. Like that's got to be the rule now. Like everyone from the fight site that comes on this program has to have Ali Bogov in there. That's gonna be the joke now. No, but that's a great. That's a great shout. This is the most. This is this is where I would expect him to end up the most. Um, from what I've seen, and now I want to go back and watch that five round war, and and his more recent stuff than his, because for me it was, I think I fell off after the Vartanian rematch, um, and then I kind of just that was probably around what was that probably I don't know around twenty seventeen or ago. so. Yeah, I mean around twenty seventeen or so. I think I start. I really got away from ACB and ACA. Uh, sadly, um, admittedly so, but uh, so I, I still have plenty to catch up there, and um, and yeah, I'm gonna go gonna go refresh on some Ali, 
Ali Bagoff once again. So uh, great number th- number three there. So that's that means it's my number three is up. Yes. All right. Look at that. I I should know. I'm host of the show. Um. All right. So my number three is I don't know. This isn't a hipster pick. This isn't a I don't know what kind of pick this would be. This you could leave this guy off the list, or you could very easily say he should even be higher, Ryan. Um, and I'm gonna go with Ben Askren. I don't know if we have any crossover there, but but he is he is gonna be the pick for me uh, here. Uh, two-time national champ, two-time Hodge winner, uh, four-time NCAA uh, Division One All-American. Of course, the other Mizzou Tiger that I alluded to on this list. Um, you know. Controversial fighter, controversial personality, but as far as style, when I really, I can't remember what it was, maybe it was before he got signed to the UFC, I had to write some kind of article, like a fantasy article, on how he would do against like the best welterweights or like uh, possible opponents for GSP or some kind of a weird angle, but it caused me to go down the Ben Askren rabbit hole watching all the college matches I could find on him. And even just the college wrestling before I re-dived into the MMA, I found a, a new appreciation if we're strictly just talking about style, perhaps because um, I've got a weird and funky side to myself uh, too. But I couldn't help but notice like this guy, even in his college wrestling matches, getting into these like almost 50-50 leg entanglements, if you will, but he would have the wherewithal to use it to steer toward a pinning variation, a pinning threat, or just to get at the very least, a top position out of the equation. And just doing weird things like that, um, you know, you know uh, stepping over, uh, n- not being afraid to give bad positions, working to or from the turtle, uh, breaking guys to or from down, understanding kind of the inner workings of these positions. You could tell just the guy understood grappling that, kind of back to what you said about Joseph Benavidez elevating a leg that, Okay, if I elevate this leg, it's going to force him to post his weight down. And if his weight and his hands are posted down, he can't use his hands to defend strikes or defend leg hook entries or riding advancements. Like, really kind of basic shit. And that is basic shit put together in a very funky way. And to me, at least... That is my impression at the core of Ben Askren's style. He kind of got into a bit of a jujitsu influence. You would see the neon bellies, which aren't bad things, um, early on in his Bellator career. But just like his like four way in a jujitsu or in a striking was similar to jujitsu when he went through that like Rufus Sport kind of period, where he's like, I think I'm going to try to learn striking a little bit. And you could see him trying to parse out a process. I feel like Ben Askren eventually, whether it was striking or jujitsu, kind of gave up on everything and was like you know what, I'm just going to do what works and I'm just going to add on to this wrestling and grinding from top position. And uh, we can talk about the definite um, shortcomings in neutral space uh, that his face usually had to pay the price for, win or lose. But once he got matches to the ground in MMA, the ground fighting, the mat wrestling that we're talking about, um, we've, we've talked about it before, but wrist rides, I mean, he, I'm a big fan of hand control. I'm a big fan of, of, of when in doubt, grab a wrist. Uh, wrist rides uh, defensively, offensively. They just, it's so, it's so damn, it's so damn useful. It's so damn useful. And Ben Askren does a lot of that. I'm sure his ground and pound had a lot to be desired. Sure, even attaching submissions, which perhaps we'll get to with the reason why I went with certain guys for number one and number two. Um, there is a bit to be desired there, which is probably why he falls in the middle. 
but for a guy with all his shortcomings almost amplifies the impressiveness of what he did do well. And whether you like the style or not, whether you like him or not, what he did do well and what he made his money off of was mat wrestling. And he had his own funky brand just like he did in college, like he did in MMA. And um, I don't know, man. Maybe maybe a guy that, that, that that's goofy looking and unathletic looking myself can can uh, <laughs> can maybe can maybe uh, find that part of Ben Askren endearing. I guess I dare say. And and yeah, uh, again, speaking strictly stylistically perspective here, I I, I, I can't deny him some shine. I, he ended up falling in my number three, Ryan. I'm glad you brought Askren up. Uh, he just ended up missing my list. I thought a lot about him. Uh, ultimately, because I was a little bit more impressed with the competition level of some other people than with Askren. Sure. But he absolutely deserves a spot here. Um, he does so many unique things that I've yet to see from anyone else in MMA. I, I get a lot of pe- like people that talk to me often think I don't like Askren because I spend a lot of my Askren discussing time talking about how I don't maybe think he's at the level that other people think he was and i was kind of known for naysaying his chances against top ufc fighters but i genuinely love to watch him he's one of my favorite grapplers to watch in mma the the way he applies folk style is just incredible he i've never seen anyone with that advanced a use of wrist rides and he does such a great job of forcing guys to move in the way he wants them uh, like a lot of what he does on top is designed to get you to turtle he'll threaten you uh with something inside control in a way like he'll go for the arm triangle or something and he wants you to move out to belly down and then start building up your base because that's exactly the situation that everything in his game is designed to exploit he's abs- he has a great um notion of how to stop their first move so when guys are they're on their on, on all fours or on their belly and trying to build up their base immediately, no matter what it is, Askren, if you post up on a wrist, Askren will tie it up, dump you back down, break you down. If you post up on your leg, he goes to a crossbody ride. And one of the, the things I particularly love about him is how he uses that riding in open space. A lot of the more advanced wrestlers in MMA, and especially those that apply those kind of folk style tactics, do it against the cage mm-hmm. and it's great to watch and an especially unique adaptation to MMA but Askren's open space riding is pretty much unparalleled nobody uses those kind of tactics with the same with the same finesse the same systematization that Askren does out in the open um, I remember him like just the way he used the cross body ride on Koreshkov was incredible he would force him to turtle as soon as he posts a leg he like hooks it with one of his leg and sits on it uh so koreshkov ends up he's not able to to get to the quad pod and build his base so he's kind of in a sitting position with askren hanging out on that one leg and then askren goes behind him and starts tying up the wrist and koreshkov just like just looks like a human pretzel like he has no idea what to do with his arms and every move he makes is just just leading him deeper and deeper into a world of shit just yeah. And yeah, it's amazing to watch. I genuinely love watching Askren on top. No, absolutely. And and it there there's just definitely like an north it, it this is not a connecting analogy and there's no real connecting parts, but in spirit it's like it's like if Eduardo Teles like didn't was taken away from jiu-jitsu and was thrown into the Midwest and he had to wrestle 
Like, you know, because it just there's a certain backwards uh, thinking as well that comes with the comfort- comfortability that Askren may accept in certain positions that others, whether we're talking wrestling or MMA, may not. And yet he thrives. And he, like you said, because he's so good at encouraging where the action is going to go, um, whether it's through traditional shoulder pressures or non-traditional pressures, um, he's good at encouraging. And if you're going to be someone who encourages, then yeah, you better know you better understand human bodies and, and grappling really well. And you can just tell he's yeah. got a, a, an intense understanding of what, you know, the butterfly effect of movements between two people, what one movement will cause the grander scale. He, he understands that. I get the sense when I'm wa- watching Askren of, of, first of all, what the fuck is he doing? But also why isn't everyone doing this? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And like so many of the things that he's brought over from folk style that are unique to him, that even the other high-level wrestlers in MMA aren't really doing, are so perfectly adapted to the MMA top game meta. And that, like, my interest in Askren is almost is like 50-50 because of the fighter he is, and 50% because I want guys who are more well-rounded fighters, who are more familiar with the MMA meta game, uh, who can kind of build that into a, a system that is more consistently successful at the elite level to look at those tactics and see what he's doing and adapt them to a more complete game. A hundred percent. He also uses the claw ride in MMA a lot, which is something I really love and something that you don't see much from other guys. Which ride? The claw ride. Claw ride. Uh, when you, um, so it's kind of like an arm triangle from the back. He grips under their armpit and around their head. Yes. And you yeah. use that to turn guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, I was actually, I had a discussion about, uh, the variations of that, and then I was, um, I, I, I'll go to that naturally, and then the threats that it opens up, and then I was having a guy making me pay for it, um, and uh, this was like a, like, both a brown belt, brown belts and black belt uh, level level dudes. So I was like, I I, I didn't want to commit, so I went through the variation of the other side where you're kind of almost like coming up like a quarter Nelson kind of ish variation and you're just driving their head into the mat <laughs> just like get away from me i'm just gonna ride you and you smell the mat and stay the fuck away from my legs uh you know but like yeah i love that claw right yeah i don't see enough of that great great show it's so great for controlling guys in the back too it's actually i've seen it kind of more from the jujitsu guys than mma guys i know formiga does a little bit of that mm-hmm. but it's really good when guys are trying to sneak out of back control to to either get up to an arm triangle or to to use that to kind of pull them back and reorient your hips yes absolutely all right um number number two sir who ended up making your number two spot we're high on the list now number two for me is kamaru usman nice um, so the, the first thing that's immediately apparent when I watch Usman fight is that he is just ridiculously strong. He, he might be like the pound for pound strongest athlete in MMA. Um, totally. His pressure is just unbelievable. He just breaks guys. He's constantly pushing forward when he's on top. Um, like we've, we've talked about before with Randy Couture and, um, uh, Chandler, Whenever he's on top, he's always maintaining forward pressure. His hips are almost in front of his opponent's hips. Um, his chest and head will be covering their face, so there's no way to go. If you watch the Dos Anjos fight, it's hard not to feel bad for Dos Anjos because he spends so much of the time like bundled against the cage. Mm-hmm. And just His hips and his posture absolutely crushed as Usman's constantly pushing forward. And like he he does that like so... 
if guys are trying to to frame on the the legs and push off from guard or trying to like back their hips out and create space he's just glued to them there's absolutely no space dos Anjos was constantly trying to do that uh, building frames getting his feet on the hips and that's a great way to escape bottom it's like it's a very consistent way to stand up in mma but he had no success creating space and usman was just constantly on him what i particularly particularly like about usman is his mat return strategy a lot of guys when when they're on top and their opponent starts wall walking or escaping their hips they'll immediately go to the back and that's good you can you can do a lot of great mat returns from the back and it's a very strong position but it also permits counter opportunities uh, if you watch anybody on jose aldo's back the first thing he, he does as soon as they lock their hands together he's arching his hips into them to put pressure on the grip and fighting the fighting the hands down to break the lock the way usman does mat returns it doesn't allow that instead of going around to the back right away he'll let guys stand up he's not really trying to to put pressure forward too much and keep their weight right over their hands but he'll put pressure he'll like sneak around to the side of them and then pressure in directly to the cage so instead of being on their back he's pushing them into the cage with their hips kind of perpendicular to the cage and then as they stand up he'll be on their side so there's not he's kind of like removed from the direction their hips are facing so they can't hit back into him and arch their hips and fight the lock because he's not directly behind them and it hides his grip kind of um, yeah. right behind their far hip. So it also makes it harder to turn the hips down or turn the to fight the grip down. And I honestly haven't been able to figure out like how you counter that position because whenever he gets it on anybody, they immediately go back down to the mat. So he'll he'll get that position where he's pushing them side on into the cage. And then all he has to do is step really deep uh, inside their stance with his inside hip so his hip is like glued to them and then he just takes his other leg it's it's super low energy too he just hooks their ankle with his own like calf or ankle and pulls it back yep and he gets power from that from stepping the inside leg so deep into their hip he can just plant off that and rip their leg back and they just collapse and nobody can deal with that and it puts them in the perfect position to start riding again because with his inside hip and leg being so deep he's right in a cross body ride so he can just hook their leg with his own, sit on their hip and sit on their leg, and he's right back where he started. And he's always ready to that right, that right or far far side arm is always ready to release and and wail if he decides to yes. separate too. He's gonna Absolutely. always have that one beat advantage over them. So they got essentially they gotta wait for him to either release and wail on him or or mat return take him back down to the ground and look yep. look for your spaces in between those actions which suck. <laughs> <laughs> He's so good at at striking when guys are standing up too. Like he knows exactly when to to release the pressure and start hitting them, uh, and he'll chain it together. He'll keep the weight on them just until they're until they're high enough that they've stopped thinking about defending strikes, and then right away a knee or an elbow, and then he's back in on the takedown. He's got really good um, wrist rides too. He'll do the the I'm gonna call it the Dagestani handcuff because I know Ed hates that. Okay. <laughs> he'll get that inside wrist yeah, control the yeah. Degasani handcuff and start wailing away on guys he's also really good um, he's got really good rides in open space I think the Sean Strickland fight particularly he did a lot of breaking him down from the quad pod chopping posts um, 
he cradled Dos Anjos a lot against the cage. When Dos Anjos was trying to wall walk or back his hips out, Usman would keep a hard front headlock and either use that to stuff him down or he'd wrap up a leg in a cradle. And the whole time he's doing this, he's absolutely punishing with ground and pound. His posture is so great in guard. When he has guys against the cage, he'll he can stand up and they won't be able to budge him at all. He just pressures in, collapses their hips, collapses their frames, and mauls dudes. Well, here's the, the, the descriptor I always use for Usman, and um, it, it, I, I pitched this to Eddie co-signed as well. And it's pretty much comes down to just high percentage. Everything he chooses is very high percentage. And that sounds very simple, but it's not. And it's very hard, and it's not as hard as it seems because it doesn't seem as rewarding as what it really is. It's very rewarding, obviously. Look at Usman, look at his body of work, his record, and where he stands and how he applies himself. Of course it's rewarding. But as far as, like, you know, um, you're going to have to go to, like, some technical podcast like this to find Usman on a list. And even within this kind of a podcast, um, Usman completely deserves to be on here, by the way. But, like, for example, the, the, the reason why, spoiler alert, he's not on my list is because with a guy like Usman, I feel like, there's still so much more we got. Not that we have to see. He's he's clearly good, but like that we want to see, right? Because we want to yeah. see things flushed out, and we want to see things answered. We want to see things further developed, uh, a further further bloom of the rose. How far the wig span goes, whatever analogy you want to use, I want to see more of it. Whereas like, which is kind of ironic, um, because he's he's technically ranked higher on the list. But like Ryan Bader, for example, is a great. Um, analogous in, in a sense because in my mind like when I'm trying to picture what will Usman look like I don't want him to get away from the conservativeness because it's really hard to have that um, that that characteristic A and B it serves him well so I don't want him to like turn into the Anthony Pettis of wrestler grapplers or whatever yeah. like, I'm not <laughs> I'm not saying that but if I'm looking at a reasonable evolution or reasonable bar of expectation um, I, I kind of see like a Ryan Bader melding. You know what I'm saying? Uh, as, yeah. As, as far as that goes. Um, and again, no issue with either of their placement on the list. Uh, but that's kind of the analogous where I see high percentage choices and just a lot of domination while still having a lot of room and a lot of directions to go. Yeah, for sure. So good pick. Good pick. A, a great, great pick there as far as Usman goes, man. I'm... He's he is hard to deny, and we'd have to talk about him even if he didn't make either of our list. All right, number two for me. Um, this is funny because this kind of touches on this theory that I have of like canaries in the coal mine um, and, and that deal um, as far as like wrestling goes, and maybe not. I mean, he he has used his wrestling in, in his recent chapter of his career. Um, albeit not as successfully. But whether guys fall in love with their hands, other parts of the games like we talked about, Ryan, or whether they just, um, you know, backs, knees, and necks tend to go on wrestlers, man. And that could be a part of it too, why we see wrestlers to different degrees of different eras, all, minus Khabib, kind of just move away from their wrestling, right? And this is Phil Davis. Phil Davis, uh, 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 Phil Davis's early to mid-UFC career because it was about then where you see a mix of tough matchups stylistically as well as him trying to develop into some outside kicking striker and all these 
almost semi-frustrating iterations. Uh, but no, I, I'm mainly talking about, you know, um, Phil Davis from maybe his last submission, one of his last submission ones, Wagner Prado, Anaconda Choke, to when we first see him come on the scene at UFC 109 against Brian Stan, doing similar moves like you referenced with Usman and Dos Anjos. Anytime Stan or guys like to get up against the cage, he was cr- hitting cradles, uh, really yes. sick cradles. I kind of posted the gif where he hits the kind of uh, he hits the uh, uh, far side cradle variation, puts him down, and then just starts slamming knees into the near side rib cage. Um, just fantastic, fantastic stuff. Uh, Tim Bosch, we would later see, you know, doing the. He actually was trying to do it against Rodney Wallace. If you go back to that fight, UFC 117. But at UFC 123 against Tim Bosch, you know, we're seeing him do that kind of reach behind one-handed Kimura grip. Um, you know, I, I, Rich Castro, shouts to the black belt and, and, and longtime training partner I work with. He's uh, He is a figure four nut on learning on the, posi- the pos- all the different positions you can finish a figure four if you really understand the position. And you see Phil Davis kind of touch on a little bit of that with his own spin. Um, with the quote-unquote Mr. Wonderful. But just, you know, seeing a guy who, you know, I mean, comes from the wrestling pedigree, and, uh, you know, a, a national champion winner, I believe, um, you know, uh, comes from a, a, an acclaimed school like, you know, uh, Penn State. By the way, uh, t- pick your poison. Uh, you know, Phil, Phil Davis next to Sandusky, probably last guys you want touching you from that school, right? Wow, Dan, <laughs> way, to, way to make sure you have no Penn State fans for this podcast. You couldn't help yourself, could you? I'm just saying, he was a, he was one of the most dangerous guys uh, coming out of Penn State. You didn't want, you know, you don't you didn't want him getting grips on you. That's all I'm saying, uh, which is true, technically. Not wrong. Not wrong. Not wrong. Nittany Lions, man. Um, but no, uh, Jesus Christ. It, it was just... <laughs> It was just so awkward, by the way, in hindsight, like watching this old footage, and then you're hearing like Goldberg, like, that's right, a lot of greats there, the Nittany Lions, and now he's in hands of another great, Lloyd Irvin. And I'm like, oh boy, none of this is aging well. Uh, Wow, way way to shoot on your pick, Dan. And and Phil Davis is a really nice guy. I've actually met him, by the way, so I kind of feel bad here, too, just saying all this shit. But yeah, yeah, that's... uh, He's my number two man because he was again a, a high, you know, a highly accoladed wrestler, but he wasn't afraid to, you know, go to mount, put hooks in. You were talking about the front headlock beautifully with a couple of guys from Ali Bagoff, um, from uh, Ali Bagoff, and so on. And you look at you know Phil Davis and what he was able to do from the front headlock and the kind of the feel that he gets, like the anaconda that he hits on Gustafson. It wasn't just the anaconda. Uh, Phil can finish anacondas and Darce variations from that weird kind of like your teed off perpendicular, making a T at the top of their head position because yeah. he understood how to use his belly. You know, using your belly for the threat. Everybody is trying to figure out what's Ben Rothwell's go-go choke. What's the grip like? Dude, there's a billion guillotine grips. People who have been under- studying the guillotine have known that for years. It, it almost has very little to do with the grip, unless we're talking about Marcelotine or grips that cut off path of escapes. But if we're talking about front headlock-based chokes, your belly plays so much into it, whether you're doing the heavyweight lazy man Ben Rothwell go-go choke or you're spinning around to that teed-off perpendicular spot that you often end up. Um, Phil Davis understood those little nuances of belly arm across positioning getting your belly or your chest you know uh, over the head or under the tricep if you're incorporating an arm in choke like all these really little things um phil davis 
Phil Davis knew, and I wish he didn't get away from it because he seemed like he was a dude who had the grappling gas tank who could, you know, go. Uh, I know there was, you know, people that could speak better to me uh, on it, um, like p- perhaps yourself or Ed even, uh, as far as uh, things that were left to be desired in his neutral wrestling game. But when we talk about submissions, striking, flowing through positions, um, man, did I love watching Phil G- Davis's game back in the day and not saying he doesn't do or can't do it anymore when he does elect to turn it on now and later on in his career. Uh, he earns a number two here. Absolutely. Davis is a great pick there. Um, the, the thing that comes to mind right away for him, like you were saying with Bader and Usman, everything with him is just so high percentage. He makes the correct decisions in every situation. He doesn't take unnecessary risks, but at the same time, he's always working to improve his position, uh, to use his control to, do, to deal damage or to set up a submission. Um, and I really love that point about the front headlock because this is something that connects so well with both the folk style meta and the MMA grappling meta. But a lot of not a lot of wrestlers have been able to use that position to submit effectively, or they aren't really geared towards that. It's not what they're trying to do. And it was it's great to see someone like Davis using the front headlock for those like chancery chokes, the anacondas, guillotines, and everything. Um, and I remember watching his fight with Magiri when he, he kept gift-wrapping gift wrapping him from Mount, oh, yeah. taking his uh, like wrist across the, his own face and grabbing it behind the head yep. and just teeing off with them from there. His wrist rides were so good. He was always on a wrist, uh, usually in an Iowa ride, and then either with an inside wrist control or a cross wrist. His performance against Glover Teixeira was really great, especially against Glover may not be the most... Uh, like consistent fighter or the most well-rounded or anything, but he's always been a great grappler. Even nowadays, like you saw him squish Misha Serkinov in like half a round yeah. in, in his advanced age. And Davis just had his way with him, just folk styled all over him, wrist rides, Iowa rides, breakdowns from the quad pod, just, just had his way with him completely. Um, and yeah, that's, what stands out to me the most with Davis is how just how consistent he was on top. Uh, just always made the right decisions. Once you were underneath him, it was incredibly difficult to get under or to get anything going because he was always breaking down the wrists as soon as you started posting out. Yep. Uh, as as far as his um, getting away from his wrestling, I think the big thing that went wrong for him there was that he never really figured out how to connect it to his striking. I might be wrong, but I think in his collegiate wrestling, he wasn't much of a neutral wrestler, and he was more of a, a counter wrestler and a rider. Mm-hmm. And in MMA, he he was all all those like he was good in the clinch, in clinch takedowns, and in like the grindy cage situations where he'd be in on your hips pressing you to the cage. But his striking was always that complete outside striking. Yep. He was a clearly defined out outfighter. He was never very comfortable in the pocket. And he didn't really, he was never really able to figure out how to get a read on his opponent's reactions in the pocket. So he never figured out how to, like, draw out counters in the pocket and hit takedowns underneath them or see see a right hand coming, slip on outside of it and hit a reactive takedown. So I think it was kind of unfortunate that it worked out that his style as a striker didn't really work out connected to his grappling. But when he was on top, he was one of the best. Yeah, and it was kind of ironic that um, 
him and Rashad's crossing when you think about it. Like, yeah, we didn't get to see him versus Jones, but we really didn't need to. The matchup he needed to see was Rashad because Rashad, who, if in hindsight now, you look back at it, he probably was already on his, on his, on his way to declining even back then because I believe that was fresh off of the Jones loss, right? And you start to see the decline. Um, and just, you know, uh, mental and all, right? Because a lot of it was mental as well. And not taking shots on Rashad, but what was Rashad great at that I often give him credit for is when people are bringing up the GSP era of connecting strikes to takedowns, they don't give Rashad enough credit. Um, yes, absolutely. There was cross-training with those camps at that time with the Jackson and TriStar for one and Rashad was kind of doing it in a slightly before, but not comparing or sliding GSP was one of my favorites, obviously. Um, but in regards to Phil Davis was kicking and riding and counter wrestling. And there was this whole, you know, uh, transitional neutral wrestling connecting to your striking phase that was missing. And that was Rashad's bread and butter, you know. Uh, throwing, th- throwing a big right hand, but being able to roll, uh, you know, doing the the head movement roll that you're kind of for boxing, you're protecting yourself from the check hook. But he adapted it to I'm gonna adapt it to I'm gonna get under the counter sh- hook, sure, but I'm also gonna change my level into a shot. And Rashad had that aspect, and it just him having it, and and Phil not completely shut Phil down in that fight. Um, and who knows what it maybe even have done to Phil's confidence if you kind of if we're doing the whole hindsight right with our with our with yeah. our uh, inspector glasses on here, but I love that you brought up the gift wrap because it's it's something that you don't see enough and we 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 we, we talked a lot about you know the, the meta game and guys wanting you to get up because they can break down and collapse posts like Ben Askren right, but. Phil almost had a more arguably deeper game as far as the quicksand aspect of that goes. And it would lead to things like gift wraps and how you get gift wraps a lot, folks. I'm not a good wrestler. I'm not an athlete. And I don't have long limbs. But gift wrapping is something that I and you can get to a lot if you look for certain things. So watch someone who knows what they're doing like a Phil Davis. And essentially, anytime someone reaches across to you, you have a, a gift wrap. What I was just talking about Phil understanding as far as chokes go, the importance of getting your chest or your belly or depending on what the position is um, behind the tricep. Well, it's not just for chokes, folks. Um, even if you're in a top position, you're on top half guard. And a lot of times, if guys are smart, they'll shut down the underhook, get up uh, you know, from bottom. So it'll force the bottom guy, instead of reaching under on the same side, if he's smart and understands wrist control, he may reach across to get a cross-side wrist position to try to start turtling, basing up, creating a scramble, etc. Um, you will make guys desperate to reach across. And as soon as guys reach across their body, this is a principle I've, I've taught since I was a karate teacher from the 90s, folks, because guess what? It applies to stupid karate, it applies to striking, and it applies to grappling all the same. This is a universal rule of thumb. Whenever someone is reaching across their body, they are weak. Yes. They are weak. That's why there is a weak side to striking. Why is everyone trying to get the angle? Well, why, why is all this angle talk, or especially in an open stance matchup? They want, they want to get the outside foot position. They want to get that angle. It's because when you are reaching across your body... You are weak. So anytime someone reaches across their body, if they're on bottom half and you're on top half, uh, 
collapse your chest. Make make it a magnet. Anytime I feel someone reaching across their body, my chest is immediately dropping down onto their elbow or their tricep to pin it. Because as soon as it's pinned across their body, not only are they weak, but with your free hand and guess what if you're using your chest properly folks you actually have two free hands which is the beauty so now you're trapping them with one hand while you still have two free hands you can reach behind their head and you know what's going to be there their hand and it's a gift wrap you can start punching you can set up your head and arm chokes and it's a beautiful thing and and phil davis no matter what the position is he's got that radar when any ever someone reaches across their body Boom, he's making, he's never let a good crisis go to waste, never let a good uh, out of positioning go out of, go to waste, and Phil Davis doesn't doesn't let it go to waste. Sorry for that rant, just a little detail no, no. that I'm like really passionate on that people. Yeah, absolutely, that's a great on. point. That's something Bader and Davis pulled through really well. There was a lot of points in the um, Mitrione fight and the Vassell fight where Bader would, like you mentioned, they'd reach across to, to fight a wrist or something and Bader would immediately collapse torso onto it and start punching him in the face from there. And it works great with that inside wrist control position. If you can get someone with the inside wrist secured, pinned to the cage, and then also collapse your your torso and your chest on their shoulder while they're reaching, it's it basically locks them down. Yeah, and it's just it's just like common sense as far as delegation or dual delegations go. I mean, a lot of the things we're talking about from head posts to pinning with a torso or chest is that what are what are you not using your 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 hands? So what remains free to work? Your hands. So you're essentially you're multiplying your limbs. We're only born born with two arms, folks. You're not going to change that. But if you can learn to use your head position, kind of like we talked about with Randy Couture before, or your torso or your chest. Um, to take away their limbs, you all of a sudden start going from two arms to two versus two arms to four limbs to one limb. You can really turn the odds if you know what you're doing from just subtle top control. Yeah, absolutely. All right, N- enough ranting from there. It it is number one time. I have a feeling this has been good. I like the balance. We've covered a lot of ground. Somehow there's been no crossover. But I suspected if there was going to be crossover, it may be on number one. So there's almost no point in, in switching up the order here. Ryan, what did you get for your number one, sir? Are we, are we at the same person? Yeah, so we've talked a lot about the, um, the folk style meta in MMA and how those, like who the originators of those techniques were and who kind of developed them. And if if there's all these forefathers of wrestling and MMA, there has to be a culmination, some some point where all these tactics meet up and get synthesized into a complete game. And who else but Habib Nurmagomedov? Yes, sir. Ding, ding. Crossover indeed. Great, great intro there because, yes, he, he synthesizes um, all those things. And let me guess, was he the first name you wrote down on the top of your list when you started uh, making the proverbial list? Without question. Same here. Without doubt. Without a doubt. So along the line, yeah. Along the lines of what we talked about with Ali Bogov, Habib's grappling is designed to let you move underneath him, to give himself space to punch, but also to funnel your movements in ways that benefit him. So when I was talking about uh, how Randy Couture was was one of the first instances I've seen of somebody controlling posture for ground and pound by forcing guys head into the mat. Habib does that excellently and often. In the the Michael Johnson fight, there were so many instances where he he's in half guard, um, he's dropping his weight on him, controlling him, and he just palms 
Johnson's head into the ground, which just kills his posture. It kills the connection between his hips uh, and his his spine. Because if, if he's forcing your head into the mat, you're looking to the side, you can't turn your head in. And if your head isn't facing in a direction, you know the, the saying, where the head moves, the body moves. So if you can take that alignment out of there between their head, hips, and spine, then they're weak. Mm-hmm. So Habib has the space to posture up. He can base out on his on the bottom of his feet, uh, just stand up and drop absolute bombs onto him. He'll, he'll throw like five or six punches there, just massive full power punches. And then as soon as he lets up that pressure, he knows you're immediately going to move to recompose guard or to turn into him, and he's always ready to respond. He gives you very few options. You can turn into him, in which case he'll drop his weight on you, he'll lock up the inside wrist, and he'll start pounding you again. You can try to recompose guard and kick him off, in which case Habib is... This is something that not a lot of people talk about in regards to Nurmagomedov, but in my opinion, he's the best guard passer in MMA right now. Sure. And if he's postured up and landing ground and pound and you try to recompose guard, he's in the perfect position to immediately step back over the leg, put you right back into half guard and start doing it again. One of the, I think, probably the most significant innovation Habib's made is his cage riding system. And a lot of the credit for this has to be given to... Wait, I've been saying Abubakar and Armagomedov, haven't I? I meant Abdulmanov. Okay, all right, I, I, all right, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> this this would be the this would be the episode for us to to, to not catch that. I I, yeah. I I was assuming the crossover training because they all because he, he trained all of them together, and I know Abubakar is oh like the God. cousin and trained under the same stable, so I figured that was the connection. I was like, all right, okay, um, but like, and I, I figured we would get to Abdulmanap when we talked about Habib. But wow, now I feel like I'll, I'll take some of the credit off your shoulders for, or, or some of the blame off your shoulders as well because I should have I should I, I should have questioned I should have questioned it more as well but yes you, you were like saying Abubakar he's, he's good I guess but uh. I was like yeah I mean they, they, they I mean yeah they got the, the that are uh, no offense to my, my Armenian brothers or sisters but they got that cousins thing they're all related right you know, you know like <laughs> okay in my sure. defense I cannot process names longer than like five letters I have a very small brain Abdul, with a lot of brain worms Abdul Manap is who uh, who we're talking about the uh, the Godfather, the, you know, for, for wrestling to his experience in the army, where he picked up the sambo and judo himself. Uh, that is the man we we're talking about. Yes, the, the Godfather of Dagestani MMA. R.I.P. Absolutely. And with that cage riding system, so if you look at some of Habib's early fights, the RDA fight, and before that, like Pat Healy and all that, uh, when he when guys were trying to build their base up against the cage, he would maintain a body lock and he would try to keep their weight on their hands put yes. his his own weight over the their back and head mm-hmm. and force their weight onto the hands so they couldn't stand up but that didn't really give him a lot of room to strike because his arms had to be occupied in the body lock controlling them after that i think probably the michael johnson fight was the first one that this took center stage in one of his fights he developed a system of control along the cage that allowed him to free up his hands and just kill guys while he's controlling them on the cage. Uh, so that starts with the inside wrist, obviously, um, which he has popularized so much that people have taken to calling it the Dagestani handcuff, much to Ed's chagrin and my unending joy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, 
that you shouldn't you shouldn't put that stuff out there. Now people are gonna people are gonna be teasing poor poor Mr. Gallo. Although you know I sympathize with them because I love I was taught that move. I love that move um, before it was popularized by Habib. So I've got a little bit of that that little bit of a hipster it has, it <laughs> cross wrist rides. In, Sorry, in high school for even a year, a hipster. Yeah, there we go. But yeah, as soon as guys look to base out, um, to post in their arms and build a base, and the way he does it, he's not just grabbing the the wrist inside, he grabs it with his opposite arm and then drags it out, drags it inside close to their body, Mm -hmm. and then locks it up with with the arm behind the back. So what that does, if you try to reach all the way around the back and grab it, your arm is extended and it's weak, and their arm that they're basing out on is is strong it's like the their elbow is is kind of in a strong position not sure if i can explain this well but it's like it's parallel to the ground it's connected to their hips when you when you grab the wrist with your opposite side and drag it towards you it kills that the elbow is open and the wrist is close to their body so it lessens the distance you have to reach but it also kind of collapses their elbow in in much the way that you're talking about that you were talking about where reaching across your body um, kind of kills your power in that direction. Having your elbow open like that also kills it. Yes, further So away. once the wrist yeah. is in close, Habib can take the arm across the back and easily secure that. Once he's there, then he's free to... He has his other arm free to strike with impunity, and he'll use his head to prevent them from... His head and upper body to prevent them from blocking with their... Like, they'll be lying on the wrist that's controlled, and they'll have one arm free to block, but he'll either get them to reach across and drop his chest on that arm to block it, or he'll drive his head inside it mm-hmm. and like pin it to the cage. Yeah. So their head is exposed, and he can punch with that inside wrist, punch with the, the free arm as much as he wants. And while he's doing that, he's always on the legs. He's riding a leg, um, or he'll have a leg mount. And this leg mount system is something we've seen from a lot of guys. It's kind of the standard response um, from modern cage wrestlers when guys try to wall walk. But nobody has systematized it like Habib has. Usually it's kind of a stalling position. Guys will like sit on the legs for a bit, but they don't really have a system of transitions there, and they're not really prepared to deal a lot of damage from it. Habib, it's connected to the rest of his riding system, and he knows how to strike from it. So the way he, the way he enters it is really unique, too. Instead of just trying to lift up the legs and slide his own legs under, he'll knee slide into it. Uh, so he'll like lift up the legs elevate them and then with his usually i think with his left leg he'll like slide his knee underneath it and then that it allows him to kind of shelf the leg while he wraps his opposite side leg around his opponent's leg so instead of sitting on their heels it lets him get really deep underneath them Um, a lot of times you'll see him sitting like at the knee line or even above the knee line and it's because of that knee slide entry into it and once he's He's in the leg mount. Obviously, it stretches out their base. Their legs are extended with him sitting on top, figure fouring his legs beneath theirs, so they can't withdraw him. They're stuck on their butt, and they can't build up their base. Now, the way that he he deals damage from there is he controls the head. Against Barboza and Michael Johnson especially, he really pulverized them from the leg mount. He, he either pushes the face into the cage, which, which lets him posture up, Yep. 
and land hard shots. He, he has like some nifty ground and pound from there too. He like mix uppercuts with hooks around the side. Um, and when they're in that, they have very few options. They can try to keep trying to free their legs and wall walk, in which case he'll just keep sitting on them and hitting them, hitting them, pushing their face against the cage um, and readjusting his positioning. They can try to turn out, in which case he'll either, sometimes he'll just take his hand and force them, force their head flat to the mat and keep punching them, or he can enter into his cross-body ride series. And the cross-body ride, when guys turn away from the leg mount or they're in another situation where they need to post a leg on the ground beside the cage, he'll immediately lock that lock that leg with his own. He, he'll put in a hook, and that lets him, like we were talking about with Usman, it lets him sit on their hip and leg and control them with his lower body while freeing up both arms to strike. And from that cross-body ride, he can hit them, and he can also control the wrist. He can collapse their post. He can get the inside wrist. Uh, so what that that system does, it allows him to freely hit while controlling his opponent, mostly with his lower body. Uh, so that's responsible for when you see him brutalizing his opponents. It's because he can control them without needing his hands to do it. I l- He's a good rider. Go ahead. Oh no, I love that. Yeah, I love that too. The, the, the you know the, the, that cross wrist position, and then like the Michael Johnson one, that little detail where he has his. Uh, his leg, uh, the shin, almost like a paper cutter, like right above the knee, right above Michael Johnson's knee, pinning it down. It's not just pinning down the leg, but it's where he pins it down. Like the closer up toward the crotch, there's more to 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 to, to move. There's more meat there. It's harder to balance. But if you, and this was actually a a, a detail that Marcelo Garcia, I remember one of the lessons I was lucky enough to have drilling was. Just you know, focusing on when you're pinning down someone from top half and you're on top half, that bottom leg they have, it's just, it's the way he pins it. He always pins it as close to the knee as possible, and it's really painful for those who grapple because it's just really sensitive in that area, and it's literally just like a paper cutting clamp, like it's borderline cutting your leg off to clamping it down in position. But like to your point, Ryan, about keeping your hands free, that's a hell of a way to ensure it. You know, that's a hell of an anchor. Um, and he just does those little subtle ones like that that I love. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he's a good rider in the open, too. He can chop posts. Um, he can break guys down from quad pod or tripod and all that. But the the real meat of his game comes against the cage. You saw, like, a couple times Ally Quinta in their fight was able to force open space engagements and kind of goad Khabib into taking his back and then work his way out from there. But when he got him against the cage, Al didn't really have any response for that. And Habib, like, a lot. I know a lot of people were really interested in the Tony Ferguson fight, obviously. I've always, I always kind of expected Habib to just slice him up. Because one thing I think is really underrated about Habib's game is how amazing he is at guard passing. He doesn't, I think there was a change in his style kind of around the same time that he started doing that cage riding system he doesn't take full guard anymore. He won't just, he won't spend any amount of time in there. As soon as you lock your legs around him, he's immediately standing up, breaking the guard, and then once he's there, he does, similar to Ali Bogov, he'll pin you down with his upper body and then elevate his hips, tripod over the guard into smash passes, and he's amazing at combining like kind of the different phases of his grappling. So he'll go from like posting on your head and punching you from posture up half guard 
then as soon as you try to kick him off and re recompose guard, he's immediately tripoding over your guard, locking up a smash pass, pummeling his legs and redirecting. And he's just there. There's no area of grappling where he he doesn't have a response. He always knows exactly what to do. He has a, a great bottom game too. Like you, you rarely see it, but those are usually the best bottom games. Um, in his fight with uh, Abel Trujillo, oh yeah, Abel yep. put him on his back briefly, and then yep. he right away went to Octopus half guard, got back up and took his back, and then hit a mat return. Again. Oh, that was a, that was such a sick. I love that transition. Yep. And then the one before that, um, where he goes into the guard briefly, he almost does like one of my favorite style of guards that almost look like uh, a shoulder pin variation, um, which is kind of a high guard attack. Um, it's like rubber guard, but in my opinion, much more practical because you don't have to be flexible to do it. And it, and it counters three, not just two ways on how to escape. Um, out of someone's guard graphs, but it almost looks like he goes for a shoulder pin position, which could set up triangles and arm bars and use that momentum to roll through um, and, and and get out of the negative position, which is just little things, but like soup, like it tells me like, okay, this guy knows what to do if he ends up on his back. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I like that you mentioned the heavy on the hands thing early in his game because that's just such an underrated aspect, kind of like I was talking about. You know, you make someone post on their hands, what are they not doing? They're not defending a choke. They're not defending an advance. They're not defending a strike. So to understand that principle and the way he's built upon it was really nice. And, like, when you were explaining the, um, I'll do those almost like, it'd almost be like a Navy ride variation to encourage a certain movement. And then when they counter it hard, that a lot of times will open that mount step over where he'll, um, you know, cross his legs up underneath and put the the, the BJ Penn versus John Fitch position, as I like to say, um, and I and and because you saw him po- do that as far as what you were talking about that detail where he puts the forehead right under the chin or you know with that head position and then has two yeah. free arms to just wallop on him uppercuts and hooks, and BJ was able to do that to Fitch too, and you go back to even BJ's first fight in the UFC almost twenty years ago, two thousand one against Joey Gilbert, who was an NCAA Division one wrestler as well as a Carlos Gracie train guy and eventually got to black belt and yada yada. Anyways, he was supposed to be a better wrestler and uh, a commensor and grappler. But you see in that clip that I posted a few uh, back, um, BJ able to use the front, something we talked about, using the front headlock to not give position but to defend, spins the position around, goes for his own double against the collegiate wrestler, gets it, and then does the kind of the Habib leg wrap. But when I... As much as I want to stand and give credit and some historical seats uh, to, to, to some of the guys doing it first, I went back and I'm like, what was he not doing that what was Khabib doing? And really, it's those it's those wrist posts. That was a big thing. I think BJ, and I don't blame him. I mean, especially at that time, he was second to none when it comes to both hips and leg dexterity. But you yes. could tell with his grappling style, he depended on that too much. Whereas Khabib, with the like you said, uh, with uh, building and learning how to go from the half guard stall, which is great, and he perfected it. And as far as beating guys down, but we saw like in the Dustin fight and other fights, he's able to still progress with the fighters and take their backs. And a lot of that is you're not when you have those cross wrist rides or those Dagestani handcuffs. Shouts to Ed. Um, you don't need you don't need the athleticism, the leg dexterity, and flexibility per se, because you've got such a strong anchor. You can go from the half guard to the full mount back mount position, 
uh, and follow those chains and progressions like Habib does so well. Um, and I, and when I look back at it, uh, even though I want to stand, that's that's essentially what BJ was missing. And back to your point, when we introduced Khabib as our number one, um, that's what makes him so special within the grappling realm, man. He was able to take all these tools from all these different people, different backgrounds, BJJ, Greco-Roman, folk-style wrestler, um, and he has all these elements in his game. And he, unlike, you know, a Phil Davis... Um, or even a Rashad Evans who does have the connecting pieces but still ends up getting teased away into the striking world, Khabib sticks to his guns, man. You know, some people may not like it, uh, which is obviously a smaller and smaller percentage as we as more and more are realizing and appreciating his game. But man, he 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 synthesized it and he stuck to it, and those are two simple sounding things, but very hard because there's very few that do it or try to do it in any semblance of success that Khabib has had. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up BJ Penn because there's a lot of interesting parallels between Habib and earlier guys. You can almost trace kind of a direct line from guys like from Penn to GSP to Maya to Habib and then sprinkle a little bit of Fedor in there for Habib. They, have, they all have kind of similar passing styles and each one kind of adds another onto the last that you can see synthesized in Habib's game. Like he has that, the GSP step over passing where uh, GSP would either posture up or beat guys until they posted a leg on his shin or a leg on his hip rather. And then he'd like angle his hips out while stepping over the leg to put them in like a headquarters position or three quarter guard. And Habib does that looking to stuff the leg into butterfly and then Maya with the tripod passing, and like you mentioned, Penn's cage grappling there. Absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, I think it's it was a a deserved, perhaps obvious, I dare say, not in a bad way, but it was definitely a deserved number one. I think from both of us. Um, I'm gonna queue up some uh, some honorable mentions, and then we'll uh, whatever the listeners don't get, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll shout on the, on our way out of here as we get out of here. Sound sound good, Ryan? Sounds good. All right. Ed, Ed, Edward Gallo MMA. I never heard of that guy. Uh, number one, Ryan Bader. Number two, Ryan Bader. Number three, Ryan Bader. Ryan Bader. Number four, Ryan Bader. Number five, Master Ryan Bader. Wow. That was a very diverse Is list. Is that Ben Cohn? Um, ben, yeah, I think Ben's on here too. We'll, we'll get to him. I think he's got Bader times five as well. So hopefully. Oh, my God. There were, there were two of them. What's that? There were two of them. Two? Who are these people, and why are they the way they are? I don't know. At Agent Ben 10 is the other person you speak of. I've heard of that guy before, and yeah, he says Ryan Bader times five. Um, he tagged God. he tagged on to Aiden, at Aiden underscore MMA. MMA. Appreciate your contribution, sir. Um, I don't know if it's in order. He doesn't have numbers, but he's got Phil Davis on here. I feel less crazy, okay? Ben Askren, okay, I feel less crazy. Habib. I'd say he's copying a my list, but his number four here is Ali Bagoff and um, yes. IDK number five. I don't know. Fair enough. <laughs> if you can think of a bonus points, if you can think of fighter a fighter who actually mentions who actually matches that those initials. Um, <laughs> let's see here. Uh, good list there. Thank you, sir, for that. Let's see uh, who else uh, attributed any uh, Octavius Rex at Crunch the Human Khabib. 
Great choice. Askren. Benavidez. Okay, there we go. Hendricks. I found that to be a very interesting choice. I'll let you touch on that yeah. here in a second. And the last one, he put Jones uh, with a question mark. He said, tough one. I'm wanting to say folks like GSP and DJ, but to me, they seem to have more of a BJJ-style top game than wrestling. What do you say to that, Ryan? Yeah, that's fair. Like like we mentioned before, it's very hard to separate these. They're not like distinct um, games or phases, obviously. In my list, I kind of focused more along the, the lines of like discrete folk-style tactics. But yeah, if we're talking about top games in general and opening that up, the term mat wrestling to mean um, any kind of top control, which of course, like we mentioned in MMA, you can't, you don't have like one thing or another. It's all combined. Yeah. GSP and DJ absolutely deserve mentions for um, for those who have the best top game in MMA history. They definitely deserve mentions, and it sucks because DJ maybe is falls victim to like Benavidez, even though I love these guys and are huge fans. Um, it's it's one of those things. It's like the flyweight division almost hurts him in that sense. Like, um, not in the sense of like Dana White's gonna stick you on the undercard. You're never gonna get a main card spot. <laughs> but like in the sense of like everybody's so goddamn good at scrambling. Like, yeah, it, you really even for guys like us with a technical eye and appreciation, we really gotta like pause, rewatch, and really focus in to even get our appreciation in on on those aspects. So I, I do wonder how much of the flyweights do. The, the, at least from my perspective, admittedly, got hurt uh, from being left off my list because of that factor. But DJ deserves sure. a mention for sure. George St. Pierre, obviously he was my number one. Well, my adjusted number one really pissed people off because uh, the crossover ended up uh, shooting Daniel Cormier, another controversial pick up to my uh, up to my number one slot. But my real number one, obviously, for neutral wrestlers was I'm, I'm, a, I'm a stan, I'm a mark for George St. Pierre's entries in his, in his peak. You know, yes. uh, you know, Thiago Alves UFC 100 days is what I'm talking about. So he was already ranking high there. And number two, George St. Pierre, maybe not number one, but damn close. If we did uh, guard passers for MMA, yeah, at least for MMA. Right up there. So I, 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 that's that's why I left George St. Pierre more off my list because I, I considered him more of the guard passing. Um, yeah. Hendricks and Jones, what do you think of those, those, those before we move on from Octavius Rex's? Hendricks, I think, would be someone I'd categorize as being a very good wrestler in general, but struggling with mat wrestling. Uh, he was very good in the clinch, extremely strong on underhooks, uh, an absolutely impenetrable defensive wrestler, but I don't know that he ever really figured out how to control guys at a consistent elite level. Uh, like, you watch the Condit, the fights between him and Condit, and um, the Magni fight, even though that came a little bit later in his career when he was probably his, his best days were past him by then but he i don't think he ever really systemized that kind of control the way that some of the other guys did in terms of jones i find it kind of hard to know what to think about jones because i or not necessarily him in general but his grappling in particular because i don't really rate a lot of the the guys he out grappled that highly um in his early days he was an amazing grappler he had tons of high octane clinch throws um coming from all angles and in all situations and he was an absolute monster on the mat like he tore up vladimir matyushenko really quickly got right into that crucifix mm -hmm. and finished him with elbows just brutally um but i never really got to see enough from him to know if he had like 
uh, a really consistent system the way other guys did. I think he kind of relied on athleticism and dynamism in a way that they didn't. And like I mentioned, uh, with the competition he fought, I'm not sure I could trust him to consistently control guys on the ground the way some other wrestlers have. But Jones, I think if we were talking about who had the, the best ground and pound, I would absolutely have Jones up there. Yeah, man, it's really tough because Jones. There's so, there's there's glimpses, right? There's glimpses, but like he just for whatever reason didn't focus on those parts of his game, which was a kind of a reoccurring theme for what either guys that don't or guys that are the complete opposite, like Khabib, that that do, that do focus on one yeah. singular portion. Mm-hmm. And you, there's a lot of theories, and they're probably it's probably a little bit of the a little of column A and column B. They're all probably have credence and are correct. Um, but it's just crazy with Jones, right? Because, like, even, like, this later career Jones, like, as late as the second Gustafson fight, like, there are certain glimpses of his, his control. Like, at his best, he is, like, that classic painting of, or maybe not a classic painting image, if you will, of the giant squid fighting the ship, and the giant squid is is, is swallowing the ship, you know? And you can get really creative with the art, art artistry. You have tentacles going through the the bow where the cannons come through, breaking the ship half in the middle, as well as you got another tentacle taking apart a sail. And that, to me, is John Jones at his best. He is that giant squid, that octopus. Um, he he knows how to collapse bows. He knows how to suffocate, hit suffocating chokes. Um, but that connectivity that is his wrestling base, you know. As great as some of it is, and parts of his career was, there's there's still an argument that there was a lot to be desired, right? Yeah, that makes sense. I'm with you there. Uh, and then same with Johnny Hendricks. I'm not a, a Johnny Hendricks aficionado, especially on his collegiate days. But what I got from his collegiate days and the stories to the way he conducted himself from the scales to his fighting is it really felt like Johnny relied on being a game day performer, uh, performing on game day, uh, playing politics, playing for points, playing playing the rules to his favor um, and using all these things essentially on game day, uh, whether it was wrestling or MMA, it felt like he didn't really go for those control positions as far as point scoring takedowns. Um, that wasn't really brought about him until like it got to crunch time. Like he didn't just go out and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put you in a negative position. I'm going to make you work from it. And if you work from it successfully, then we can strike. Like he didn't really have that process to him. Like it, right. it was, it was, I'm going to wait till game day, and whether it was the scale or the fights, you know, that, that, that catches up with you. He also struggled a little bit to adapt to the, the cage being there. Like, he had some trouble defending Rick Story's takedowns on the cage because it's quite a bit of a different game from neutral wrestling. Yep, yep. Okay, uh, that's it for listener lists. So kind of our honorable mentions to um, get out of here. Uh you fire whatever you want at me, Ryan. Let me just say real quick. Um, can I give you the three that I got H's next to their names, which means they're really close to making this list? Yes. Um, one was an old school guy for the number five with Mike Chandler. I was really tempted to put Matt Hughes on here. I know he's not obviously the most popular dude, <laughs> uh, <laughs> nor should he have been at, at any point of, if you met him from him, you know, how he treated animals to childhood to the, Yes. Violent affairs that he apparently still gets in with his twin brother now. Um, like, uh, <laughs> wow, Dan, stirring tribute here. Uh, another stirring tribute from Dan Tom incoming, folks. So he goes to, like, pat a guy on the back and it inadvertently shits all over him. But, you know, you got to give credit where it's due as far as his game. He was a guy who was one of the wrestlers, not just being comfortable putting your hooks in, but, like, 
even a step further, like he knew what to do off of his back, you know? Like you could even see that muscle memory after he had his accident when it's like Matt Hughes back on the mats. Like what was he doing? He was playing guard from bottom with like butterflies and a trapping system. Like you know what I'm saying? Like like for for an old for an old man that just got you know his brain ran over. Like there's some uh, there's some you could tell he really appreciate all facets of the grappling for whatever that's worth. Sakurai was a legend and absolutely elite when he beat him. Yes, I just uh, rewatched that. He was a little bit undersized, yes. but out grappling Sakurai the way he did was an amazing accomplishment. That yeah, was huge, man. I mean, and then if you look at his first two fights, I think the actually the second one was uh, I think he was more of a shoot fighter instead of a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, although he was Brazilian. But the first guy at UFC 22 or whatever, it's like a sambo guy, and you're just seeing him like. Uh, oh, cool! You got arm arm bars from the guard, which was like the main thing, especially for them, uh, for Sambo. And he was just shutting it down inside the guard, like even early on, you know, or like he would face Jeremy Horn, one of the you know submission. We're talking about submission grap, pure submission grapplers. He's he's another one of the early pioneers. And like, I remember watching this early like '90s match or mid '90s match. Matt Hughes is a fucking mullet, and he hits like this like judo <laughs> uchi, straight up uchimata, tosses Jeremy Horn in the air, and then lands in the arm bar. Like, you know, not quite like DJ or Borg or anything like that. And it wasn't anything that crazy, folks. But it was it was damn impressive, you know? Like, yeah. And, and obviously we're talking about Matt wrestling. But um, the two newer school guys that almost made this list, for me, because they, they have so much more room to grow and more to show us, is uh, Aljamain Sterling and Islam Makachev. Yes. Great picks. Um, these guys, a couple years from now, if we're doing this list, perhaps uh, would, we wouldn't be surprised to have... Uh, for, for for them to make our list, uh, you know, in a, in a few years, right, right, Ryan? Yeah, for sure. Sterling, I, I could even see putting him on there now. Sure. Yeah. If if he if he um, especially if this is uh, if he's re-entering that fold of grappling, you know, he he went through his phases of learning how to strike on the outside, going through close matches, going through wild matches, right? He's he's kind of gotten those kinks out of his style, and he's he's come out on the other side. He was lucky enough to come out on the other side with a process attached to it. Let's hope he applies that process uh, back to that grappling, man, because I love watching it. Absolutely. Both those guys are do a really good job blending wrestling with kind of a more traditional jiu-jitsu meta uh, than a lot of the guys we've talked about. That's really interesting to watch. I mean, risk control, Makachev, I mean, another one. I mean, like, I think it was Leo Kuntz or whatever. I mean, I know that's not a notable name, but, like, what he did from the back mount. Like, simple shit like that, like picking their wrist off, making them fall flat on their face. Like, simple things. Like, oh, there's your post. I'm going to take that away. Um, really cool stuff. Anybody uh, you want to mention before we get out of here, Ryan? Mike Brown. Yes, Mikey Brown. I feel like people don't talk about Mike Brown enough, and I'm guilty of that too because he had like a really short prime. I think he only um, he won the belt from Faber. Uh, he beat Faber again. I think he might have defended it once, maybe Leonard Garcia, and then immediately Aldo came along. And what are you gonna do? Aldo's Aldo. Mm-hmm. So he had the the little bit of a title reign, and then he met like the greatest featherweight of all time, one of the greatest fighters ever, and it kind of overshadowed him. But when Mike Brown was on top, he was a genuinely great fighter and an even better wrestler. His second fight with Faber is an yes. absolute masterclass in yes. wrestling. Um, he was doing a ton of advanced folk style tactics that we're seeing uh, a, a lot more use out of nowadays. Wrist rides. I think he was doing some cradles there. Um, and he had the the great. We were talking about how guys funnel the bottom player into moving in ways that benefit them. Yeah. Mike Brown, if Faber turned, he would 
consolidate half guard or something, and then when Faber turned into him, he'd lock up a front headlock. He had an excellent front headlock. Um, he'd threaten guillotines or go behind him to attack the back. If Faber turned away from him, he had the navy ride, or he would let him turn and attack the back directly and get into a ride. I think the second Faber fight was probably the most effective use I've seen out of navy rides in MMA. Yes. He was consistently on that far leg, preventing Faber from turning away from him or slowing his turn enough that he can consolidate position when he went up. Well, I was going to say, as someone who is a fan of the Turtle, um, obviously I'm an Eduardo Tellez fan, but as far as MMA goes, though Tellez fought MMA as well, um, Uriah Faber and Team Alpha Male, one of the, the first to popularize turning away and giving your back, um, which is something that I will I will do. Um, and, and, you know, you, you, you know, you can fight from Turtle, people. If you know how to do it, you know, um, it, 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 it's funny. We're so drilled that it's, like, illogical because of what it, what it gives, which is totally true, and we'll get into that in a second. But, like, people, you know, wrestling was one of the first sports, Olympic sports back in the day. Like, you know there were stone, right? There wasn't any mats on the ground. Like, even if you transported fucking Hicks and Gracie, uh, I don't know how well good the guard was going to be when you're on the fucking stone floor. <laughs> um, you know what I'm saying? So how did people fight back then, Ryan? They went turtle. They went turtle. And so, as, but as much of a big turtle fan uh, as I am, and as much as a turtle proponent, Uriah Faber was able to remind people of, like, that was the first, you know, you know, right, right as you got into the Navy ride point, which was perfect. That's the first match where you see Uriah Faber not enjoying going turtle, folks. That is yeah. the first match you see him not enjoying going to turtle and it's because of what mike brown has made the choices that he's making him make and what he's doing to him like you descri described subsequently for making those choices it's that's yeah, fantastic shout the man beat eve edwards at lightweight that's just insane fucking mike brown man and, and like i believe both of those if not one of them was after getting his uh knee torn apart and from an mnr role that he, that was like a career ender by the way folks yeah i mean talk about going against legendary fighters and grapplers by the way um, um sorry go ahead you already brought up the Aljamain sterling and makachev so i'll shout out one of my one of the more kind of under the radar picks alex perez yeah, uh, oh yeah, I like Alex I think Perez. he's only had like four UFC fights so far. Um, probably not too well known, aside from getting smashed for from by Joseph Benavidez. But he has a really nice folk style based top game. Good wrist rides, the Iowa ride, front headlock rider, and he has an amazing front headlock. Yes, and what's what's the best? Uh, he hit an anaconda choke in one of his uh, one of the first UFC fights he was in. <clears throat> Which what were you going to say that? there? Oh, I was just going to say uh, the best. Oh, sorry to interrupt. The best thing about having that front, front headlock game is the fact that he's actually like a good striker and, and can put pressure on guys because that obviously feeds right into the front headlock. People wanting to close space with you or shoot in on you, force a shot. So that that it just it connects so beautifully. But go ahead on the front headlock. Yes, absolutely. And he's really figured out how to kind of link that kind of folk style headlock game with those submissions. He uses it. Like we said, for the Anaconda choke, he's a great back taker off that as well. I think he hit an arm triangle choke in one of his recent fights against De La Rosa. Yeah. So he has that folk style game, but he's also developing uh, like a consistent pathway to use that to open up submissions. Against, uh, or was it against, uh, what do you call the... the uh, uh, De La Rosa? Think the guy who fought De La Rosa recently, wasn't it, who, who he hit it against, though? Um, the, the, the head and arm? It was uh, the Espinosa? Oh yeah, that's right. 
I don't know. Maybe yeah, I, mean, I, I don't have it. I know he fought both of them, and uh, but uh, but yeah, no, totally. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great shout. I I love Alex Perez, man. He's uh, he's done me well as far as from a pick and play side as well. That's a great shout. Um, I just have a couple names written on here. I don't know how how serious some of them are. Uh, I got Chael Sonnen, who you know, say what you will, man. That guy, he 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 did uh, do some quiet developments to his game. He worked. Um, Right around that time, coincidentally, he got the head and arm choke on Brian Stan. He was working with uh, Neil Melanson for a bit there, a coach of mine. Uh, obviously came from the Team Quest days um, as well. Um, it wasn't what, what wasn't too shabby of a wrestler, as uh, Ed Gallo recently broke down on his podcast. Um, he wasn't going to make my list, but I definitely knew he was going to be an honorable mention, just for a guy to shout. Um, Chad Mendez also there, even though I know Ed's a big Chad Mendez fan. Um, you know, not... Not my, or even obviously a casual fans, maybe favorite style of Matt wrestling, uh, Chad had. But, you know, a, a great wrestler nonetheless. And, uh, you know, you weren't talking about the front headlock position and and, and riding. Uh, I mean, you know, look no further. Chad Mendez belongs on every list. Yeah, that's, he's, he's not hard to, uh, not hard, not, not hard to come up for that for. Um by the way, like some of the stuff still ages well. Like even a guy as shot as Clay Guida, you're like, oh, Clay Guida's all shot and old and this and that. But you're like, wait, he's only been knocked out twice somehow in his whole career. And one of those guys, of course, was uh, Chad Mendes. So, um, sorry, I wrote Cain Velasquez down here. I knew he wasn't going to make the list. I didn't have time to go back and watch. Obviously, Cain Velasquez did not give himself time to. Uh, and I was not a Kane hyper. Like I was one of the people screaming, like how is Verdum such a big underdog uh, to him? <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, um, he did have some really awesome rides and strikes back in the day that I didn't get a chance to go back and watch. Um, and of course, I wrote Brock Lesnar next to his name, another guy who has a small and skewed sample size. Um, but when he got to, I didn't get a chance to go back and watch like Frank Mir too, especially. But, like, when he got to certain riding uh, and top positions, man, the dude was just a beast. Um, he wouldn't have made this list, but I just wanted to write his name down. I'll shout out a couple more names quickly. Uh, Frankie Edgar. Yes. He did a lot of kind of more jujitsu-based top control, but he also had the, the folk style riding. Uh, he used cradles a lot, great at attacking the turtle, breakdowns from the, from the tripod, turns from seatbelt, and great go-behinds. And finally, as a more another under the radar pick, I mentioned him a bit earlier, but Michael Perez, he fights in LFA or at least he did. I don't know what's going on now, but um, he oh, yeah yeah he's not the he's like a 37 year old Cuban Olympic wrestler, uh, so he's never gonna be like an elite fighter. He's only been fighting in right. MMA for four years, and he's not gonna reach the level of a lot of the other guys we've talked about. But if you're interested in folk style riding tactics, go watch his fights. He he's like the the really good but sloppy striker version of a mat wrestler like he throws everything he'll he'll do like deep full nelsons um three-quarter nelsons uses cross body rides a lot in open space which is really interesting to watch uh he tried to submit somebody with a splatle in one of his fights and came kind of close to doing it he's a ton of fun to watch um he hasn't really figured out how to integrate that into a complete game but like i said he's he does a lot of those things, wrist rides and everything. Crazy to watch. His fight with um, Brandon Moreno was a ton of fun. And it's it's interesting that he was... Yoel Romero must have trained uh, 
on the like on the same Cuban Olympic team with him. Yeah, and with the kind of guys he was training with. But it's interesting that he he like immediately went into MMA and started applying so many folk style tactics. When that's always been the criticism of Romero, that he was such a freestyle guy that he never really figured out how to apply a top game to MMA. Definitely, definitely. Um, now I'm thinking of guys like now I'm trying to think of like. You give me a flashback too. What was his name? Alexis Villa, who had a very oh, yeah. dark pass after MMA, <laughs> but he had the same chain before that. As far as that, was he a Cuban guy? Was he a Cuban wrestling uh, world so. guy as well? But yeah, and of course he came in and was trying to knock people out, so he didn't really use it. But I do like that though. A guy from free and realizing the benefits of folk of, from an MMA transitionary sense. Great shout there. Wow, this was fun. This is going to be the longest episode. Congratulations, man. You can't <laughs> accuse me of being sick of you, which I obviously was not. I was very excited to have you on. And, Appreciate uh, that. I had a great time, man. This is awesome. Yeah, man. Hopefully the listeners enjoyed this deep dive. I think we covered a lot. This was almost kind of like a historical retrospect in a, in a, in a way, too, in the way things kind of ended up um, putting together as far as context for these techniques and when they get integrated. Yeah, really, it really kind of like we we went over kind of the modern game and traced its roots back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we used a lot of good examples, and I think I think our list uh, balanced each other out as we get out of here. Recapping the list, Ryan had at number five a fellow Ryan, Ryan Bader. His number four was Joseph Benavides. Number three, Ali Bagoff. Number two, Kumaro Usman. Number one, Habib Nurmagomedov. My number five, Michael Chandler. Number four. Randy Couture, a little bit of Greco in there. Number three, Ben Askren for the funk. A little bit of refined funk in his own way, Mr. Wonderful Phil Davis for number two. And, of course, I co-signed with Ryan Wagner at number one with Khabib Nurmagomedov. So, I, you know, I feel like we both have a defensible lists on our own, albeit different ones. For sure. And speaking of lists, you're continuing to make your way up my very long list of my Dan Power rankings list. And Danny Martin's been slipping, so oh, he might no. be primed to take the top spot sooner or later. Oh no! Oh no! That, that's uh, the, the, the dangerous. Shouts to uh, sh- shouts to, <laughs> shouts to is Danny Martin the one that hates Daniel Cormier? Which who has the, uh, the the most hate for Daniel Cormier? Yes, that is Danny okay, Martin, yeah. my colleague at the fight site, who is well known for his Daniel Cormier hate. Well, I don't want to be on Danny's list of Daniels that he hates. So shout out to Danny Martin <laughs> and respect to that Dan list because this is a deep Dan list. So I appreciate that 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 compliment, sir. That's legit. Um, thank you for joining me again. If you want to find uh, Ryan Wagner, you find him on Twitter at Ryan A. Wag MMA, or find his work as well as the work of the Ed Gallows and Danny Martins of the world at thefight-site.com. Plenty of other uh, great people. I really I really love uh, Suriam's uh, post-fight uh, write-ups too, man. He's been killing it there. Another shout, another reason to go check it out. I also don't know how to pronounce his name, but he is great. <laughs> is that is that is that gonna be the running gag too? Everybody just slaughtering the poor poor guy's name. Uh, oh man, in chat we call him like Siri Monkle, like Muay Thai names, oh my sidearm. Oh my gosh! All right. <laughs> well, any other shouts you want to give before we get out of here, uh, Ryan? Yeah, check out like Dan mentioned. Thank you very much for promoting us. Check out the fight site. Subscribe to the fight site Patreon uh, and our YouTube channel. We offer you can pay us for scouting or to write breakdowns of your favorite fighters. Um, check out all my colleagues, uh, Danny Martin, Edward Gallo, Kyle McLaughlin, Shriram Muraladaran, I think, close enough. But we have a great crop of guys at the fight site. Um, yeah, check out our website. 
if you enjoy Dan's podcast, I think you'll like what you see. Well, if you're over there on YouTube, subscribing to their YouTube channel. Make sure you check out my YouTube channel. I could use some subscribers. Give me some love. Daniel, Tom, T-O-M-M-M-A. I'm going to get it to Dan, Tom, M-M-A shortly. Follow at the PYM podcast on all platforms. If you want to follow me, you're best off just keeping it to the old Twitter, at Dan, Tom, M-M-A. That's where I'm active most. Uh, until next week, uh, we're going to be back for UFC 251 Breakdown. going to have... Uh, Fernanda Pratis from The Athletic coming on to help me uh, break down, get her perspective. we got some Brazilians that are finally getting back on the radar this card since it'll be international over there, the old Yaz Island. Uh, so join me for that. And uh, until next time, folks, protect your necks.